welcome to episode 114 of Zapped to the Past. I am Adrian Mills and I'm joined as always by Mr. Graham Raddings. If you haven't listened before, this is a podcast where we discuss games that were released for the Commodore 64. Last week, we looked at our first batch of games from issue 46 of Zap 64, which we are in no way affiliated with, and went searching for Anks in Total Eclipse, went searching for Troutman in Rambo 3, and went searching for a game in Ocean Conqueror. This week, we continue our look at February 1989, and the second batch of games reviewed in issue 46 of Zap 64, along with what was also going on in the UK albums chart that month. Graham, the winter months continue unabated. Please tell us that we don't need to throw another copy of Lee Enfield on the fire to keep us warm. In this slimy-covered air-given episode... We break out our footy boots and head to the 8-bit sensible stadium for a blistering speed top-down arcade-style kickabout in the mighty Magapro soccer. Try and fight the urge to push forks into our eyes as we wince in abject horror at the gargantuan game awfulness of Double Dragon and huddle around an overly large egg before grabbing it and trying to escape the evil claws of Dickie Davis with International Rugby Simulator. It's an old saying, but a true saying, never steal another man's egg you risk a terrible, terrible fate. We also pop to Endor, say hello to the cannibalistic teddy bears, and take on the might of the Empire in return of the Jedi. Take a combat helicopter on a war-ridden shootout across some complicated horizons in the thumpy Hellfire attack, before finally settling down for a story of ancient shenanigans, mighty whatnots and treacherous doohickeys in the fantastic Times of Law. Talk about the yin and the yang. A long and exciting adventure at least awaits you this week. Unfortunately... There's also a dog poop, and it's just waiting for you to tread on it in your brand new slippers. Nasty. You can keep throwing them on the fire to keep yourself warm. <laughs> Actually, yeah, we should do, just throw them all on there. Get <laughs> that all back. Just, you know, if you feel like you, you're a bit chilly, just throw a few more of those on the fire. <laughs> they burn so well. Absolutely, but they release demons. <laughs> like Homer's underpants demons, yeah. <laughs> Homer's underpants, yeah. The thing is, the tapes won't burn. They just sit there in the fire. There's, there's something dark about those tapes. They just don't yes, burn. Yes, they, won't, they can't be got rid of by mortal weaponry. They cannot. Uh, did you have a... You've been on holiday, haven't you? Did you have a good holiday? I, have, I did have a nice holiday, thank you. Yes, it was very nice, very warm, very mountainous, very uh, walkie-walkie. I did a lot of walking, actually, on this holiday. It was very good. That's um, good. So walked about... Well, at least one, one particular day, I walked about 10 to 15 miles, which was all around the coastal area where we visited. It was very nice. It was very nice indeed. Loved That's it. good to Loved hear. It. That's yes. very good to hear. I've been uh, just catching up with some marking. Enjoy it. Lovely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Each to the their own. <laughs> the lives we lead. <laughs> this is the life I chose. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. It's not so bad. It is what it is. It is what it is, absolutely. Oh, dear. I don't think we've got much to cover this week. Have you got any announcements? You've done some stuff, haven't you? You've released, you've, you've made something. What have you made? Yes. Well, we, you know, we had merch on Redbubble, which has always been available for some time and still is to an extent. But we've also extended our brand. Since we had a nice new shiny logo, I thought, let's get some, you know, other T-shirts and such and bits and bobs done. And that's exactly what we've done. Put the links to our new merchandising uh, websites. If you feel, you know, like you want a t-shirt or you want a hoodie or mug or something fancy with our logo mm. or some funny, you know, images. And let's let's be honest, we've, you know, there's some funny phrases that we've come out with. Well, they're all there in <laughs> mug or t-shirt or alternative thing format. Go and have a look at the links. I won't bother, you know, reading them out right now. But you go to the show notes, click on the links, 
if you fancy any of those items, treat one, yourself, one of the I things say. I would mention that I did notice that you had put on there, which I will draw attention to, because I don't think we've actually put them out anywhere, is your alternative crapverts, which you have done yes, versions of. Yes, so you the did Redux. a version of uh, the Fighting fighting Warrior. Was it Fighting Warrior, Mumbles, and there's another one on there, isn't there? Uh, Bazooka Bill. Bazooka Bill. All are very good. Very good indeed. Yeah, we threw those together for a bit of a goof. Can't take you know full claim for all the artwork in them. They're a bit of an internet amalgamation with a bit of styling for yeah, yeah. but they are what they are. And if you you know if you like them, well, you can get you know little mini prints of them if you want to. Yeah, absolutely. You can get us up to the past cloth hat on Redbubble as well. You can exactly. So Redbubble is more the sort of you know handy merch. The yeah, so that's the mill mug, is obviously mugs, mouths, mats, and hats. That sort of stuff. Yeah, but yeah. you know, go and have a look. Just go and have a browse. Have a look. Have a look. We don't we don't advertise our own things very well, do we? You know, we, well, we're not that kind of people, though, are we? Sort of thing. No, we're, humble. We're, hum- we're humble and humdrum. We are humble, and you know, <laughs> but it's. Go and have a look because, you know, there is some funny stuff in there and I think you'll like it. It might do, yeah. So, yeah, there you go. That's quite nice. Um, with that out of the way, should we get in some games? We've got six this week. I think week. it's time. The time has begun. I think it's time too. So let us get into our very first game this week. And that game, well, it's an expensive one, this, isn't it? It's Micropro Soccer. It's got the word Micropros on it, so add a fiver just for that. <laughs> That's true. It's the Micropros <laughs> tax. It's a weird one, though, because it's not like, you know, you're not doing military things in this one. Certainly not. This is Micropro Soccer. This is 1495. This is from Micropros. It's got 90%. This is a sizzler. Mm. Um, in issue 46. So uh, let's let's see what's going on here. Whilst recent football sims have left, my, well, myself, probably not you so much, but I mean, you've been you've been scarred by them, but myself, somewhat jaded, and I use the word jaded as the lightest possible term I could probably come up with, like Peter Bearsley's horror show, Roy the Rose's nightmare, and Gary Lineker's lack of football training sim. Here we finally <laughs> have a solid entry into the C64 lineup, and one to certainly challenge the mighty Emlyn Hughes's international soccer. I am, of course, speaking about Micropro Soccer from the Charming Fellows at Sensible software sits odd at Micropros. this does indeed <laughs> it's an odd I, I haven't read the book so i don't know how this actually came about maybe you can shed some light on that i don't know i shall reveal all um if you could yeah so this is the usual bunch chris yates on coding john Hare on visuals and martin galway on aural duties so for any of our american listeners though this was renamed in the u.s as keith van aaron's pro soccer girl keith van aaron it was <laughs> keith van aaron well he was a goalkeeper <laughs> okay <laughs> In various American soccer leagues during the 70s and 80s, he played 11 seasons of major indoor league soccer as well. And that goes, I think, some way to explain the presence of the strange indoor soccer variant that accompanies the main game. Yeah. So I think that's what that is about. Anyway, I don't know. But it is what it is. Keith Van Aaron's pro soccer, pro soccer, micro soccer. It is what it is. However, the main game is what I'm going to be primarily talking about here. So this is the main version of football. And that's what I'm going to talk about here. I'll I'll mention the sort of indoor one a little bit later. But this is mostly about the, the sort of main game. This is the fully weathered and the outdoor version. So when this loads up, it's got a loading tune. (laughs) <laughs> if you thought the Le Combat School had gone drum sample heavy, then then go and listen to this. I'm not sure what Galway's doing here. I didn't like this at all. I thought it was awful. Um, it was a I bit thought, weird. I thought my machine was playing up, so I tracked it down on YouTube. I SID players, everything, thinking this must be something wrong here. No, it's just rubbish. I really, really don't like this tune. You know, and I'm a massive Galway evangelist, but this is terrible. Anyway, once the game loads up, we've got a completely different type of tune, a sort of match of the day style ditty, sort of jaunty football-y kind of thing. To accompany things and 
it's very strange, but uh, but I can see why they've gone for that because it feels very British and very you know very much the day, as I said. And we've got a wealth of options to choose from here. And obviously, there's no story to this; it's a football game. But before you get into the game itself, you've got a load of options. You can alter whether the game switches player automatically or manually when you're defending. So whether you press fire or whether you let it do it itself, uh, you can decide whether to have the weather or not. Whether the weather, whether to bring the weather with you. You can alter the strength of the banana shot from low, medium, or high. You can change the match length from 2 minutes to 12 minutes in increments 2, so 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12. You can choose whether to have the replays on after a goal is scored. Um, and you can also select whether you're playing on a colour or black and white TV, which is quite a nice option. And because obviously back in the 90s, 80s, so some people were still playing on black and white TVs. It wasn't, you know, colour televisions were not the norm still at this point. And you can choose whether to have the in-game music on or off. Have it off. Matron, um, have, the, have, have the music <laughs> off. It doesn't. It, it doesn't work. I don't think the music on in the game. I didn't like it. Anyway, once you've set all that up, you can set up your own players. There's a thing called the name bank. When you initially go in there, it just has player one and player two, and you can delete them and put your own names in. Uh, I think you can have up to sixteen, and so you can pick your own away colours. So sort of home and away kits. So red and white, or blue and cyan, or whatever. You, you know, you just pick your own colours, and you'll if you want to have a lead, you'll need to do that. So that's another thing you can do. You can do name bank there and so once you've got all that done you've got several modes to choose from so in the main football mode these are the micropros international challenge there's a world cup tournament a soccer league or a two-player friendly which is a quick two-player kickabout um and you can also watch a demo watch a demo of this if you really want to watch Hmm. the the computer play itself it's up to you anyway the first one, the Micropros International Challenge. Well, that's a series of games against ever better teams. It's the essentially what this is is you play like a you get level one and you play I think Oman and then you play Cameroon and you go through these levels trying to work your way to the best teams and work your way through. I don't know how many levels there are. I didn't play all the way through it, but it's just basically the teams get harder, so the challenge gets tougher to sort of progress. And you have to beat that team. You can't draw. You have to beat him to progress to the next level. Um, and so that's that. It's essentially sort of a one-player challenge mode. That's what that is. The World Cup tournament allows you to pick a team for each of the human players. So you could just be playing this on your own. When it starts off, you it's quite a confusing little bit of menu system. That you have to pick a team, and then it says you're not enabled, but you move it up or down, and you can pick a country. So once you pick a country, then you're into the World Cup, and there are six groups of four teams. You play through the group stages, and you're into the quarterfinals, semis, and finally the final. You play essentially you play a World Cup. Um, you pick whoever you want to play as, and you just go through it that way. Um, the soccer league is where you play a league against other human players. So there's no single player option there. I thought it was a bit disappointing. I think you could have had a series of you know you you clearly play against a lot of computer opponents here. I don't know why there isn't a at least I couldn't find it, a single-player option for the league. So I think that's disappointing. I think you could have had a league system with, with the computer going. Don't know why why that's not there, but can't have everything, I guess. You know, don't write words, I suppose. Once you've chosen what mode you want, you pick the teams and it's into the game. And let's get one thing out of the way here. This takes a lot from the 1985 arcade game Tekan World Cup. Okay. Um, I went searching around the internet for see if I could find some sort of chat about this. And I did find an interview on c64.com where John Hare slyly stated that the best arcade conversion they did was this, as it was secretly Tekken World Cup. So I think they've looked at that and, you know, and the similarities are very obvious. We'll, we'll come to them in a bit. But this is essentially, it's a version of Tekken World Cup. Um, it's not the first game to do so that we've seen, that Super Cup football we looked at back in episode 104 exactly exactly yeah that took a that took a similar top-down perspective but you know 
that was that was okay for what it was budget budget top down view but i think you know this does it a lot better i think but you know it is what it is you, you get what you pay for if i pay 15 quid i'd expect it to be better than a two quid game you know, absolutely that's, that's you know goes without saying so yeah this is the kind of view that, you know this this is going to go on to be a staple we said this about super cup football in the next few years games like kickoff sensible soccer world of sensible soccer all those kind of things being prime examples that would rule the roost especially on the amiga and, and going forward it's that top-down sort of, you know, overhead sort of satellite view. This is more chunky than those Amiga versions, though, you know, obviously due to the lack of resolution of the C64. But I think this does a pretty good job in the visual stakes, um, but we'll come to them in a bit. Uh, the controls themselves are relatively simple. You've got eight-way running of the player you control. That that player is denoted by this. It's sort of flashing, just sort of, you know, it's flashing. I can't remember if it's the kit flashing or whether the actual player is sort of flashing a bit. But it's flashing, so it's clear who which one you're, uh, you're, when you're controlling. If you have the ball, you can dribble with it. Um, and once you hold down the fire button, uh, that allows you to do various types of passes. Holding it down and then just and letting go of the joystick, you'll keep running and you'll do a lofted pass uh, after a certain amount of time or you can let go of the fire button. Um, and that's sort of your power bar. There's no power bars up here. You kind of get used to how hard you're going to hit it. Um, and how far it might go. But yeah, so that will do a lofted pass if you let go of the joystick. Um, if you keep the joystick pressed in the direction you're running, so I'm just going to take all this if you're running upwards. If you keep the joystick pressed in the uh, running upwards, you'll do a low pass, okay? So full, full low pass. If uh, you pull the joystick in the opposite direction to that in which you are running, you do a crazy overhead back pass. <laughs> Seems odd. Very sensible. You know, this is sensible software, as you know, as you'd expect. So it's a bit strange, but yeah, you do basically you just kick it backwards over your head. And if you hold the joystick forty-five degrees to the angle in which you're running, you will do a banana shot or pass that will bend depending on the strength you set in the main menu. So if you're running up and you hold sort of top right, and then it will fire, it will go bend off to the left and then come into the right opposite way if you're doing it if you're in the opposite direction. If you have the uh, power on high, it will bend all the way back to you. And I'll, I'll come to something about that in a, in a bit. But yeah, so you know, low, it's low, it's certainly a banana. Yeah, low will just do it a little bit. Medium's a fair bit. But high is like crazy, crazy curling. When not in control, pressing the fire button initiates a sliding tackle as you're running, and this is the only way you get the ball off the opposition, sort of to knock it away from the maps out of their control. Player switching, as I said, can be manual or automatic. Pressing fire changes the player when you're not in control of the ball. And should you be defending um, and they and the other team are attacking, as they get close to your goal, a grand horn will sound to indicate you now have control of the goalkeeper. It's a weird thing. It just goes, you've got the goalie now. Like, uh, I wish you I didn't. are goalie. <laughs> I really wish I didn't because I was terrible. I'm terrible every time with the goalkeeper because I'm usually running in the opposite direction to what I want the goalie yeah. suddenly to move in. So yeah. Anyway, it does horn for the goalkeeper. Anyway, it all moves very fast, and all the normal things apply. Rules for football, apart from there's, there's no offside, but the players running about all over the place. There's throw-ins, there's goal kicks, corners, etc., etc. The pitch itself is nicely shaded with a mix of green and cyan, which shouldn't work, but it does. So it's, it, I don't know, it's an odd mix for a sort of football pitch, but it kind of works and I kind of like it. It sort of looks unusual, but I do like the look of this game. The players are well drawn. They're being a mix of high and medium res. They've got that high res outline and medium sort of filled in bits that works very well. And they're animated very well too. So there's lots of character to these characters to them. When you score, they jump up and down and, and all things like that. So there's, they're nicely drawn and, then, and they're nicely animated. There's also weather, as I said, and that can happen if you've got it turned on. It can happen anytime and it can just be light rain indicated by little splashes on the pitch 
pitch and a sort of noise, sort of noise. And it can go all the way through to full on lightning storms um, where you get flashes, thunder, bigger splashes on the pitch. And that's, you know, visually well represented. I really like the way it does that sort of thunder and, and lightning. It adds really sort of a, a quite a nice atmosphere to it. But it doesn't only sort of affect the visuals, it also affects the gameplay as well. The wetter it gets, the wetter the pitch gets, it makes the ball whiz around much faster. So when you slide in and tackle someone, the ball will fly off or your passes will go a lot further and things like that. So that's a nice simulation of wet grass. So that's a really nice touch. Also as well, um, sliding tackles, when it gets really wet, just see you spin uncontrollably and in random directions. So you've got to be really careful once it gets, you know, the thunder and the lightning all kick in. A sliding tackles, if you just see your player go, wee, spin off. Again, nice. it's a nice sensible touch. It's got that sensible humor that we've sort of become used to. Um, and 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 adds adds quite a nice touch, but to the sort of frenetic nature of the game that it can't. It's not always sliding in and, and to be perfection. So having the weather on is quite good. So games are fast. Goals can be scored relatively easily with some quite exploitable AI. The one I used to use when I was younger, and I managed to sort of pull it off again here, is if you're if you have the banana shot on high, if you run into the area, you'll sort of draw the goalkeeper out. And running back out, it'll sort of stay on the edge. If you can manage to sort of run across from one side, one corner, and then do a full-on banana shot, run sort of lateral to the goal, do a full-on banana shot, it will burn right out and in back into the uh, area and then into the goal. And the goalkeeper, because he's right out, won't be able to get to it. It's fairly exploitable and relatively sort of, you know, you can do that quite regularly and easily score. Alternatively, uh, goals from angles are your, you know, your, your sort of favourite. But, you know, it's okay. But it's still fun until you get to some of the more tougher teams where I found, and I played this a fair bit, I played this fair back, back in the day, it, I found it almost became virtually unplayable as they do nothing but slide. They're so quick to get up that I found I couldn't keep control of the ball or even do anything. And it turned what was a quite a really enjoyable arcade footy game into an annoying experience. Some of those tougher games when you're against the top opponents because they're only made tougher because the fact they can just slide up, slide up. You can't do anything. You're just literally sort of trying to run around, but they're just so fast. And they're so on top of you all the time, just sliding in, sliding in. And games are just a, they've become a monotonous slide mm. fest, which I found quite annoying. In two player, this is not such an issue, but it really gets very frustrating in the higher levels of the single player modes, like I said. And it's just, that's, that's, that's frustrating and annoying. There are some, you know, and I think that's its biggest downside. Two player, this is great. Those higher modes, they're annoying. There's some other really nice touches as well. Like I said, it's got a very clever replay feature. After goals are scored, uh, where it sort of rewinds with this sort of black and white flickery TV sort of um, effect and then sort of plays you through and, you know, you can watch the goal again and your players jump up and down. It slows down just as the ball's going to sort of cross the line. All very nice. And there's a massive goal, uh, you know, big goal in letters appears on the screen when you do score, which is taken straight out of Tekken. Uh, World Cup. So yeah, it's just, you know, it's presentationally, this is excellent. You know, from the presentation side of things, this is a really, really excellent um, piece. It's smooth. I couldn't find any bugs. It, it all works exactly as you expect from these guys. And it looks the part. It's just a bit frustrating in those higher levels. The American version is an indoor five-a-side game, which is odd. So it has the same menu layouts, just with different teams and, and different names of the modes. So it's pretty much the same game. It's just a, well, it's a smaller pitch, but the, the modes are different, but the different teams, but everything else is pretty much the same. The game itself is played on a five-a-side pitch, so there's no throw-ins. It bounces off the side, so you know there's no outs. It just bounces off the side, and it's it's much smaller. There's, there are smaller goals. Um, it's kind of so it feels faster and a bit more chaotic. You also have rush goalie as well, which is uh, a bit crazy because I just wanted to wow. pass the ball, but just, you know, it's all over the place. It's a nice touch, I guess, but it's, it's essentially, essentially though, ultimately it's, it's a smaller version of the main game and, and that's what it is. 
it is what it is. Although weirdly, when you do start a game, there's a there's another jingle, there's an, an extra bit of music that plays, which I, yeah, which which is not in the main sort of version. I don't know why it just is. It's just there. If you take this as a conversion of Tech and World Cup, and I think you know you can. There's some additions, but I think if you do, I think it's a very good one. It's fast, it's snappy to control, it looks great, and it's fun to play. But and because of that, it's an arcade game at its heart. And so that does come with a bit of a cost. If you put it against the other big football game we had recently, which is Emily Hughes' International Soccer, that felt like an attempt, an approximation of football, trying to be a bit more of a full-on game, 11 aside. Whereas this feels like an exaggerated version of football with its sliding players, players spinning on the spot, overhead kicks, banana shots, all that sort of stuff. This feels like a you know an arcade variant of it. And it plays like that. So it's... It, I don't really feel there's much competition between Emily Hughes and Micro Soccer because they come at the, the sport in very different ways. It's like comparing FIFA and Virtua Soccer. They're, they're doing different stuff. So these two can sit aside each other quite comfortably, I think. It's no bad thing. There's certainly, mm. like I said, there's certainly room for two different approaches to the game. So from the arcade view, this is the pinnacle on the system. There's there's not a better arcade footy game on the C64 than Micropro Soccer. It's great. It's really good fun. It's a different game to Emily Hughes's, which is fine. So if you like the more sort of semi 11 aside game, go for Emily Hughes's. If you like what's something fast and chaotic and crazy and weather and sliding and overheads and banana shots, this is gonna you know tickle that itch. Um, and I think that's the you know that's that's where I came away from this. I just wish those teams at the higher levels just weren't so slide crazy, but. Small thing. The rest of it, excellent. Really enjoyed this. What about you? Yeah, I mean, it's Micropro Soccer, isn't it? About the pinnacle, like you say, of this kind of arcade-style football game on the system. They make no secret of the fact that they ripped, they say ripped off, that they um, made a version of Tekan. I mean, yeah. they, they, in the book, they call it out quite, it's, you know, quite, it's quite clear that that's, that, was the, that was the game plan. They said that that's the game they've been playing in an arcade, that they were sick of games that were football games that were played from the sidelines and they wanted a different perspective and they they didn't feel that any of the games football games were really meeting their requirements for football games fair enough oddly titled in it in the US Keith Van Aaron whoever that is so this was actually strange there's some i mean i'm to, to not i'm not going to add much more to what you said in terms of the game design and everything else cuz it is football game and, and it's good no there's no way around that it's a very good game this was made when um the business duo of sensible became a trio because martin gore became a business partner of theirs at this point oh, right, a really okay. interesting fact he was originally working over in the u.s for a company that was making times of law um and he was actually going to take up a residency there because he'd quit his job at ocean at this point so he was no longer a contractor ocean he'd left ocean at this point and he was principally hired by or he, he bought into the business of sensible at this point They'd moved into new offices as well, All right. um, because they were sort of they were in, they would be working out of their houses right up to this point. So this is really the point when Sensible became a business as such. It grew into the business that it became much bigger later. This is where it began. Now there's a really weird, you know, it gets weird with the, how it all worked out because Martin Galway wasn't part of Sensible for very long, um, and they had a bit of a frosty relationship with each other. He was principally hired as a coder, a game coder, and he oh, ended really? up coding loads of stuff for the Amiga stuff that they were doing. Anyway. We won't go into all that. But at this point in the time, they'd convinced him not to take up a position with um, the company that made Times of Law. So he was flew back and went into working as a business partner of Chris Yates and John Hare. So then the project they were working on at that time was this. This was originally going to be called Sensible Soccer. Um, <laughs> but they, op- they put it out to option. So they basically took out loads of full-page adverts in the gaming press at the time, not the popular press that we would know like Zap, but the gaming, the wholesale gaming magazines, the developer mags or whatever you would call that. Right, okay. Um, saying, we've got a game, who wants to buy it kind of thing, and we're going to sell it to the highest bidder. They got £30,000 from Micropros. 
So that was their advance for this game. That basically paid for them all to get new houses and cars at the time because 30000 is a lot of money. Yeah, very much so. And then um, the rest, as they say, is history. So that's why it was they wanted, Micropros wanted their name on it. That's why it changed from sensible soccer to Micropro soccer. All right, so this would have been sensible. And that obviously then we know that came later. Mm. So I think my sense of this game is that it's made by people, certainly I know from knowing John here, that he's a massive football fan and it shows in this game. You can tell it's made by someone that knows about football. Now, Emlyn Hughes was the same. Clearly people who made that had an affinity or at least a liking of the game mm. and understanding of the rules of way the world, the way the World Cup works. In some of those football games we've played, I mean, I've probably got more of a clue of how football works and I didn't even watch it. So this one clearly is the replays, the way the game plays out, the sort of just the adherence to some of the logic and rules, the way that you would participate. It's odd without that league in it. I agree with you, but for whatever reason, it's not there. But I noticed in the way it plays that it's it's a genuinely somebody, somebody not just knows how about football, but loves it and plays the game as well. There's nuances of this that you can tell. I know John here plays quite regular football still. So it's clear that there's, there's a bit of passion for the game in it, which is nice. And that, I say it's, it's in the details really in it. And yes, it's obviously very influenced by the arcade. There's no doubt about that. But I think there's a, it, it, with that comes the added passion of a UK football enthusiast. It's sort of, you can feel it in the game. Mm-hmm. You can feel it rippling through the game. Not the US thing, which I think from what I read in the book was just done because they had to, because it was going, for sale, going on sale in the US. Yeah, it wouldn't so surprise it like, me, yeah. Yeah, well, that's exactly why, because they you know, they were asked to create a you know, UK version, which they'd already basically done, and we need a version that's going to play it in the US, so that's why it's... I never saw there. that five-a-side version when I had this back, you know, back in 1989. I, I never I never had yeah. it, because I, I don't think I had the original, so I just had the Micropro Soccer exactly. version. Exactly. I'd, probably Most people probably came across it that way. I think I don't think I've ever owned an original uh, sensible game in my life. Sorry, John. <laughs> I'm not sure that I have. Um, oh no, I did. I did actually buy cannon fodder. So, all right, fair play. Um, anyway, so they said, in, like I said, they said in the sensible book they were sick of crappy football games, and so they set about you know doing what they do in their own little way, and and it's got all the sensible quirks, as you say. And of course, later we know that this really took they you know, sensible took off in the Amiga, principally on the back of this game and the Amiga version, of course, becoming sensible soccer. And of course, later now we've got sociable soccer, which is on PC, which oh, is a, yeah. you know John his successor to this. I've never played that, but I imagine it's probably if it's got John involved in it, he's such a football nut. I imagine that it's it would be very into his leagues and stuff like that. And you can tell later down the line where it all goes. But so £30,000 is what they got. I think uh, it's a supremely confident approach. It's fast, it has those nuances, but it's still a great, you know, great game to play. I mean, I was straight in. It doesn't take long to get into it. And I, I quite like that. There's quite a lot of preamble for those people that like it. But if you just want to get in and go, and, you know, there's the actual football game itself plays quite nicely like that. I thought it had great graphics on it. They're actually double-layered sprites. One of the first games of this type to use them. So you've got two sprites overlaid on top of each other to give it that kind of detail. Yeah, it's the what Ocean had been doing it for ages, haven't they? So, so it's the first one, I read around that it's the first one John John Hare did. Yeah, right? exactly. It's, so. the, it's the first sensible game that does it. And that yeah. kind of sets, sets the benchmark for the way they do things later down the line, of course, with that kind of sort of sensible guy kind of view. Mm. Um, but it's got a big play window. It's very fast. I, you know, It's a really good football game end-to-end as far as I can see on the C64. It remains one of Sensible's most accomplished titles on the 64 by you know it's in the it's in their top league of their games like Wizball and things like that I think so it's the one that people remember them for as well as Wizball and then of course this is their penultimate game isn't it because you've got I think Insects in Space I think is the next one that's it for the C64 for Sensible I think after so. that they're on they're on to 3D tennis or whatever it was or table tennis and then it's Amiga all the way after that it's a great game this still plays brilliantly 
I think it should have been a gold medal, really. I'm not sure what quite 90%. I don't think they've been a really a bit fair. They were more than happy with that, by the way. It's, you know, the Zap team, uh, sorry, the Sensible team. They were like, yeah, we got 90%. But I think on reflection, looking at it, I think it's perhaps it deserves a gold medal. It's a lack of league and compared against Emlyn Hughes's. If you don't give Emily Hughes yeah. a gold medal, I wouldn't get. Don't give this it. But. Yeah, and, and I, I get that. I think, I think, just for me personally, I think it's you know, it's it just sticks out as a sort of a landmark title. And then Hughes probably should have got one too. I think we said that at the time. Yeah, probably. Um, so for different reasons, you know, when you've reached when a game's IK Plus should have got one because it was the pinnacle of that kind of game. And then Hughes should have got one for the pinnacle of that kind of game. And this one should have got really, you know, props got one for this. You know, when we think about games that have got gold medals or the Thalamus titles, for example, did they deserve them really? I don't know. Sub of April of the day. But I enjoyed Pro Soccer when I replayed it. It is pricey though, but still. Good fun all mm. the same. Good fun game. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Definitely go and check it out. So it still, still plays well today. Yeah, still a good laugh. There we go. That's it. It's Pro Soccer. We like. We do like that. Yeah. There we go. Let's move on to our next one. Hopefully, <laughs> I'm not even going to say it. I'm not even going to say it. <laughs> Don't bother. I'm not, I'm not saying it. Let's move on. From one non-arcade conversion to a proper arcade conversion. Graham, you have the pleasure of telling us all about Double Dragon. It's a pleasure to tell you about it. That's pretty much where the pleasure ends, though. <laughs> yeah. Double Dragon, uh, 9.99. this. It was published by Melbourne House. It was developed by Binary Design, and the musician was Charles Deenan. Charles Deenan is a Maniacs of Noise guy, I think, or something like that. It won't matter, actually, for this. I don't think anyone who was involved with the C64 version of this, in whichever version that may be, would ever stand up and go, I made Double Dragon, unless they're in some kind of encounter group with the other people who made it. <laughs> no, you know, some kind of Double Dragon Developers Anonymous group. So Double Dragon, <laughs> let's look at the game first then. The Double Dragon is a 1987 beat-em-up video game developed by Technos Japan and distributed by Taito for arcades across Asia, North America, and Europe. Sorry, this is wiki information, I believe. It is the first title in the Double Dragon franchise obviously. Mm -hmm. um, the game's development was led by Yoshihisa Kishimoto. Sorry if I pronounced that wrong, Yoshi. And it's the spiritual and technological successor to Technos early beat-em-up. Now, God, what is this? Nek Neketsutsu Kohakuni-kun, or, or Renegade to you and me. Renegade, All right. yeah. Yeah, Renegade. All right, spiritual successor, maybe. Apparently, Kishimoto originally envisaged it as a direct sequel and part of the Kunio-kun series before making it a new game with a different cast and setting. Double Dragon introduced several additions to the Cuneo Kun belt scroll beat-em-up formula. Let's call them side-scrolling beat-em-ups. Okay, it's easier. Uh -huh. um, such as continuous side-scrolling world, adding a sense of progression to play a cooperative gameplay, the ability to arm oneself with enemy weapons after disarming them, and the use of cutscenes to give it a cinematic look and feel. We take those things for granted in side-scrolling beat-em-ups later down the line. This is where they kind of began, um, a lot of those extra things, and that's quite important. Double Dragon is a very important side-scrolling beat-em-up. Oh, without, absolutely. Out yeah, of yeah. doubt. It was one of the first successful beat-em-up games to become Japan's third highest-grossing table arcade of 1987 before becoming America's highest-grossing dedicated arcade game for two years in a row in 1988 and 1989. That is pretty impressive, is it not? Mm. I'll come up with just there's some other few bits and bobs, but I'm just going to go through. There's a very simple story to Double Dragon, so I'll just go through it. And this is for the C64. The arcade story changes, to, and this, there's a version of this out on so many different platforms. And the, there's subtle changes to all of the basic versions. So the story I'm going to give is the C64 one. The rest of them are variations of the arcade of like this. So it's the story of two twin brothers, Billy and Jimmy Lee, facing the odds together in a city where survival has to be learned the hard way. This is from their instructions, I believe. Their knowledge of the martial arts combined with the experience of tough urban existence has made them both formidable fighting machines. 
ready for any challenge that comes their way, including crappy C64 conversions, because <laughs> that's a challenge, all right? But now the brothers are faced with their greatest challenge ever, Billy's girl, Marion. And actually, just as a footnote here, um, that's not strictly speaking Billy's girl. In the arcade, they both uh, really like Marion. And that's a very important factor in the arcade, and it should be an important factor for this later, when you get towards the end of the arcade. We'll talk about that later. Anyway, she's been kidnapped by the Black Warriors, a savage and ruthless street gang led by the mysterious Shadow Boss, using mm. skills gained from a lifetime on the streets. And whatever weapons come to hand, including knives, whips, baseball bats, rocks, and even oil drums, Billy and Jimmy must pursue the gang through the sprawling slums, factories, and outskirts of the city to reach the thug's hideout for a final confrontation with the infamous Shadow Boss. Now, there's a couple of interesting things about the um, cast of this game. So you obviously the two main players are Billy Lee and Jimmy Lee. And then you've got some enemies in here. Now, one of the enemies in the C64 game, they've written in the instructions as Lopar. And in the arcade, that's Roper. <laughs> and there's also a character, an enemy character called Williams. They're both characters from Enter the Dragon. Yeah. So it's a homage, direct homage to Roper, and, which is um, <laughs> played by, what's his name? I'm going to break um, something. William, <laughs> yeah, well, Williams. Yeah, I'm going to break something, Roper. That's uh, Williams is um, Black Belt Jones. That's the same guy that played Black Belt Jones, uh-huh. uh, who was actually a very famous karate champion. And of course, the other one is the, I don't, I'm not sure he was famous for anything, apart from uh, kicking somebody so hard in the nads that they, he kills them. And that's no way for no man to die. No, that's worth some buckwheats. This is terrible. Anyway, so that's the principal story for the game. And as it, as a side-scrolling game, side-scrolling beat-em-up, got to get from point A to the end, beating people up along the way in kind of standard tradition of these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Okay, we know what we've got to do. Okay, C64, wow me with the conversion. <laughs> wow me with it. Do it. Do it. Wow me with it. Now, in the instructions for this, by the way, there's a footnote. It's funny that it's there. It's in the actual instructions for the game, and I'm going to read it to you for bait major because I think it's very important. It says, okay. and I quote, a note from the programmers, dear games player, during our Herculean task, and this is genuine, of cramming as many as possible of the multitude of animation and graphic elements that make up the arcade game into the Commodore 64, we were faced with a problem to get both one and two player options and to achieve the authentic feel of two player simultaneous action simply took more memory than we had available. But we know how disappointed you would be if the game didn't have the same two-player mode as the arcade game you know and love. So we came up with a memory-saving solution. We implemented sprite stacking techniques to create the animated characters using two smaller sprites instead of one larger one to create each figure. The resulting small gap you may notice in the characters at waist level is the compromise that the architecture of the C64 forced us to make. This should not impair your enjoyment of the game in any way. Signed, The Programmers. I can tell you something, it bloody well does hamper the game. <laughs> Sorry, I do not I accept your apology for that. That's genuinely in the instructions. That's from the instructions of the game. It is. I mean, goodness me. Talk about putting your, you know, saying, you know, right, all right, we know. Right, we know. We, we, we made it that way on purpose, really. Binary design did this, Adrian. Binary design. F- binary design. Of all the people to get conversion over the line. For the makers of such marvels as Inspector Gadget, Droids, Grange Hill, Feud, Strike, Rastascan, Xeno, and Zub. This was their conversion. You okay. remember them? <laughs> try, try, I didn't. Droids, Grange Hill, and Strike. I, I didn't want to. <laughs> no. What's strike? No. I don't remember Strike. I mean, okay, let's just give them a minute of consideration. Trying to cram an arcade like Double Dragon in 64K in a meaningful way, and as they've said, was never going to be an easy thing to do. Sure. We've had games like Renegade, Target Renegade oh, and the strike. like. 
Sorry. And they went. It's the isometric bowling not horror. Exactly. Don't don't think about it. If you think about it, you'll that's it. You're too late. It's possessed you. <laughs> so we've had games like Renegade, Target Renegade, and like they're not perfect either. It's a very tall order, as we know. And oddly, the arcade version displayed 384 colors on the screen out of a, a palette of 4096. That's a 12-bit color palette. The hardware for the arcade used several 8-bit microprocessors, including the M3609. And it ran at a cozy 3.8 megahertz. And of course, it had two megahertz, another two megahertz ship running in parallel, along with multiple Hitachi HD639 based processors, multiple processors. There were also slings dedicated to sound. It had a Yamaha YM2151 FM synthesis sound chip. It wasn't going to be an easy arcade to convert in 64K, but it isn't also classically an arcade in the tradition of an outrun or a space area. Got a lot going on, but those aren't altogether mighty chips. It's not a 68,000 process. They're just rammed loads of 6502 or 6502 variations into one machine. Not uncommon to do that at the time. It's not quite running fast enough. Chuck another chip in it. It's not still not there. Chuck more chips in it. Just put them in, pile them in, just pour them in. Okay, so this is an attempt to convert that arcade, warts and all, into something palatable on the C64. Unfortunately, this fails on pretty much every front that it could have failed on. Or is it fortunately? I don't know. It's meant to be a belt scroller with some kind of 2D, 3D type screen depth and assortment of enemies with weapons, lots on screen, two players kicking butt. It's a benchmark for so many games, this, in terms of its formulation. It's utterly crazy. This conversion, however, is woeful, really bad. They've tried to cram in as much of the arcade as possible in the C64 by their own admission, having to make difficult decisions to maximize the game's playability on those 8-bit systems. The title screen sees some badly realized graphics, an attempt at the arcade music, not wholly bad, but not good either, and you can choose one or two players. When the game starts, you are presented with a blocky, badly realized facsimile of the arcade with horribly drawn graphics in yellow, brown, and gray. It's a sea of brown bricks and yellow cement, naff-looking pathways, and what I think are meant to be skyscrapers in the distance. I'm not sure about that. There are hints that whoever or whatever, drew this catastrophe into reality, had at least looked at the arcade once as there was a subtle eggy whiff and horrible basic visual familiarity. It's like sort of you sort of recognise and go, it kind of looks familiar. There's something about it. There's attempts at shading in that horrid three-colour way. Not nice. And your minuscule player sprite is so awful it defies belief. It's vaguely human-looking in a hunchback vest-wearing Elvis kind of way. And just as indicated, clearly made from two separate top and bottom sprites, that seemingly have no real understanding of each other. So they're, they're, they're part of the same person. They do their own thing most of the time. I had legs facing one way, I was facing the other. The moves didn't make any sense. It's just awful. You use your joystick to move this rancid pixel turd around, admittedly speedily in the middle, and a glance to the edges will shuffle and scroll the screen along in a way that only frustrates somebody like me. <laughs> At some point, enemies will affront you in pairs. They're not very good. They're as badly realized as your sprite and as well animated as your probably expect at this point you're supposed to be a dexterous fighter on a mission that is not what is here you flick and fidget around maybe punching a head button possibly even a kick i didn't seem to be able to do any flying kicks or anything that moves around the screen rapidly and it didn't really seem to bother the enemies either who just kind of moved and punched and moved and punched and moved there's no thought for gameplay or excitement or anything it's it's ploddy pedestrian shite the moves are sluggish unpleasant to even attempt and seem to have no real response to what you intend no music here either it's all sound effects, SID clips and punch sounds, and not what you'd call classically enthralling. Think about Target Renegade and how the music really drove that along. Big uh-huh. mistake that you didn't do that. The main window is the game. At the bottom is your single line UI, which is terrible, with score, lives, and time. Good old basic score, lives, and time. It's all you need. It's all you need. That's all you need in this. You move to the right. The screen shuffles. You will. Well, it's not a fight. You just fidget them to death, and eventually after knocking them down about six times, 
you'll lose your lives and mercifully it's the end. And to add, on, add insult to injury, it's also a multi-load. Goodness me. I just want to say this, say this. Kung Fu Master wasn't visually appealing necessarily on the C64, but it was a playable multi-sprite beat-em-up. Did what it did and you could get by with it. Had they chosen that road for this, maybe, and I don't get why they didn't, because it's as much as we said that Kung Fu Master on the C64 was a bit of a blocky, you know, blocky, but it was a game that was playable it and it was all there. Well. It was fast. And yeah, exactly. It. What it wasn't was this shuffling nonsense. Had they chosen that road for this, maybe there'd have been something to it, but they didn't. Instead, there's this shuffling pile of awfulness to slide slowly across the screen while you stare at it in utter shock. And what a terribly, terribly bad game this is for a 1989 release. It is truly horrific. The only possible thing in this entire fiasco is the music. And that, thankfully, is mercifully short and only on the title screen. Everything else is so bad, it rates as one of the worst games I have ever seen on the system. And easily one of, if not the worst arcade conversions. And that's given some of those other really bad ones a run for the money. What was that? <laughs> Karnov, I'm looking at you. Carnival. Utterly, utterly crap. Oddly, there's a, a 1991. Exactly. Oddly, there's a 1991 limited release ocean cartridge version of this arcade too, and that's also bloody terrible. Principally, the same issues. Maybe the graphics are a tad better, but it plays just as badly. There seems to be one move that works: headbutt, and that's it. <laughs> yeah. The title screen is yeah. better, and there's better music. Yeah, it's but it's great title screen on that one. Yeah, yeah. But considering the importance of Double Dragon the arcade and the multiple versions that are out there across loads of formats. The C64 versions, whether it's Mastertronic published or Melbourne House, because I came across two variants, or the Ocean one, are reprehensible pieces of 8-bit garbage. Just 15% in Zap who hated it. No surprise, it should have been zero, and it was full prices too. Now, as we slowly watch the sun setting on the C64, and even though we know there are some good games you know, for it still, we know that, these crappy cash-grab arcade clusterfucks serve only to remind us that the hardware in the wrong hands, or in the grabbing hands, as Depeche Mode would say, is simply a cash register toy to rip people off with. I hate that about these kind of games. And I feel that this kind of rubbish really lets the C64 down in such a core way. It was and still is in the right hand, a very capable and well-engineered 8-bit platform for games. Pity these money-grabbing fools didn't think of that at the time. As a footnote on the games that weren't, there's talk of a version one of the Ocean Cart version of this, which is in monochrome. Why? Who knows? It just goes to show, it was never finished, thankfully. It just goes to show you they never had a bloody clue what they were doing with this game. <laughs> Crap. I absolutely hated it. And I'm a big fan of side-scrolling beatmaps, as you know. This is an abomination, and it upset me. Actually, <laughs> our first game I played on the C64 that genuinely made me upset for it and upset for the machine, because it's, it's on its last legs. You don't need these people hammering nails in the coffin like this. Crap. Did you like it? No. <laughs> That's why I gave it to you, because I knew you'd love it. Oh, how bad is this? <laughs> the answer is very bad, isn't it? Yes. No matter which version you play, it's awful. And we've had, as you mentioned, Target, you know, Target Renegade. These games can be done on the C64. I mean, obviously, Target Renegade was single player and things like that, but you, you can do it. I mean, you have bikes and stuff, and but you can do them. You don't have yes, to, it with, can. you know. There's the original version, so the original night, and it, clearly it's just been rushed out for Christmas because obviously these games are being, you know, what are in Zap in February. They, they, you know, it's the leftover from Christmas that they're getting them to review by the time they write them and everything. So this is just a, a cash grab at Christmas. Oh, Double Dragon. You like Double Dragon, don't you, Jimmy? I'll get you that for the C64 for your Commodore. Oh, Chip Gran, no. So the original version is a horror. It's got terrible controls. I, I couldn't do anything. No chance to do anything against any of the enemies. No. I didn't make. I, I got. I, I got past the first one. I made it to the second one, and it's only because I ran past the first one. In a game about fighting, yep. I ran, and that's 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 not right. Um, I, I did manage to do the uh, the jumping thing, but it but my body split in half. 
It was horrific. Yep. I was like, oh, that's not, that don't look good. And then I read that that thing at the uh, back of the uh, instruction manual and realized what had gone on. It reminded me of that, um, what was that other game? Was it Trantor with the split? And yes, the split yes, sprite? Was, yeah, it's yeah. that similar nonsense. Get your sprite lines in, in order. <laughs> Get them in order. You know, yeah, Figure it out. Bloody hell, I'm sure. RK sure Plus I'm, managed it. I'm sure yeah, Impossible Mission did it. Yes, uh, true. Then we have the odd cartridge version, which sticks on some nice front end. That weird picture of Marion has been kidnapped. Why has she not got any clothes on? We don't know. <laughs> it says Marion has been kidnapped by the Black Warriors. Rescue her! Okay, almost. But then it turns into a headbutt simulator. Because that's the only way the only move we could get to work against the pesky enemies. Headbutt everything. <laughs> It's like, what's his name in train spotting? Like a Begbie simulator. Then he headbutts someone. I'm sure he does. Anyway, this is awful. It's dreadful. I, I, I'd heard tales of this. I'd never played it. I heard people mention it going, oh, it's really bad. But you don't quite prepare yourself, do you? You're like, can't be that bad. And then you load it up and you start playing. And you're like, oh my God, what is this? No, 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 no. This is dreadful. Another candidate already for shite game of the year. That, that you know, yeah. that list is already quite long. We're only in February. <laughs> it's so true. God. Painfully, painfully true. <sighs> yeah, this was goddamn awful. 15% is being generous. I mean, it loads <laughs> and then you wish it hadn't. Yeah, yeah. And just to say, I don't know. I think they try to cram as much of the arcade in. The arcade's quite quite lengthy. And at the end of the arcade, um, and I alluded to this earlier, at the end of the arcade, you actually turn on each other in the game. And the final part, final bit of Double Dragon is you have to beat each other up in a twist. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, and then, you know, w- w- the one who beats the other person up is the winner of Marion. And that's why they, you know, they're fighting over it. You don't get that in the C64 version. The only thing you've beaten up is your sense of well-being as you play it. <laughs> By the end of that, you'll feel, you'll feel, you will, you'll, you'll feel gloom. You feel, you know, <laughs> a sudden sense of overwhelming gloom will come over you. <laughs> Yeah, yes. It's not something I see catching on. Um, <laughs> there we go. Double dragon. Oh, just awful. Awful. Dreadful. Terrible. Thing. Let's move on. Let's move along. We've got one more this part. And that one is a budget title. I'm not going to tell you who it's by, but see if you can guess from the title. International Rugby Simulator. Mm, who could that be? think. <laughs> could that be for £2.99 I was quite surprised at this because it seems that Dickie Davis wanted his ball back on the cover <laughs> it does look like Dickie Davis it's just a guy running away from Dickie Davis playing rugby it's just Dickie <laughs> give Davis me my ball back. Angry. <laughs> give me back my egg <laughs> my <laughs> leathery <laughs> leathery egg <laughs> it is it's weird weird type weird cover um, and the guy on the right as well looked like Ray Clement um, it does for those, uh, it's very odd it obviously just got some faces from various sports Oh, for sports games. Anyway, this has got simulated title. It's International Rugby Simulator. It's another game from Codemasters. It's two ninety nine. This. So yeah, for two ninety nine, you can experience the thrills of scrums, lineouts, and tries. You remember them? Um, <laughs> this was made by Deltek Software. Who's Deltek Software? Well, it's Ted Karen. Because <laughs> aside from the music, which by David Dunn, he did everything. He did. Good old Deltek Software. It's the only game he ever did in the sixty four. So I'm guessing he really liked rugby. Because, you know, he must have done with all the football games in the system. He's kind of figured it was time to show us all the British version of Hand Egg. But you know, that's what it is. So there's a decent loading screen on this, to be fair. I think it's a Welch rugby player who's sort of diving with the ball. And it's, it's quite a nice loading screen. I'll yeah, 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 yeah. And there's a, when it loads up, there's an interesting menu with a nice raster bar selector, which I quite liked. You know, it's you know, weird. I didn't know why Simple. all the options were so spaced out. <laughs> Because make it look, fill the screen with options. Uh, I've only got eight. Okay. Just put big gaps between them. Just but I've got to move the rest of them. It's all about the gaps. <laughs> it's just loads of gaps. <laughs> Very odd. 
Um, and there's an okay tune I get, which is neither annoying nor t- memorable in any way. It's just a tune. It doesn't annoy. It doesn't. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't make you remember it. But it's not terrible. It's okay, David. Um, yeah, D- David Dunn. Um, it's okay. It's fine. Anyway, so your options here: you can play a single player or two players, uh, two player game, or you can play a league. And uh, there are options to change the team names, team colours, and reset policies, which um, sounded quite officious. <laughs> I wonder what that was all about. Hang on, stop the game. We've got to reset the policies. <laughs> we've got to reset the policy. <laughs> the policy yeah. of truth. Re- ref blows no. a whistle. <laughs> right, everyone in. We've got to reset the policy. Right. Oh, not again. Do you? Uh, the eyes have got it, I'm afraid. Sorry. Right, back on with the game. Absolutely. I, I, I just want my lawyer to look at this. <laughs> Hang on a minute. I need, my, I need a barrister to have a read through this first. Uh, <laughs> Here, look over this egg. Ah! This part, <laughs> section 3.8124, can I uh, just bring the uh, the chair's attention to the notion that players can't dive in this game? The motion is denied. <laughs> and egg on. Oh. And egg on. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, reset the policies. You can also set the length of the halves as well, you know, to whatever you want them to be. Um, there are also some handy help screens, which you attempt to explain how to play the game. Went over my head, though. It's just... <laughs> I'm mine. Uh, I read it played rugby. Uh, okay, that's rugby. I know I know it vaguely. So when you start a game, you get a little jingle and a nicely drawn view of the end of the ground, a bit of scrolling text telling you who's playing, and hopes are that this could be actually okay. That the, the, the sort of stadium. That's the most misleading screen ever in a simulation game. <laughs> I know. That that, the, I was like, the, wow, that looks great. The stadium looks good. Clouds <laughs> are nice. The scrolling's good. I was thinking, this looks yeah. kind of cool. This, I, I, this could be all right. Why did it only get 39%? At this point, you can amend the team strategies. On a kind of weird, you press press one of the F keys and it brings up the strategy screen, which is like, I was looking at it going, there's bars and dots. <laughs> What does it mean? What's it mean? <laughs> uh, I just pressed to it. Yeah, that'll do. I like that pattern. That looks all right. If you know your rugby, I'm sure you can make that make out of this. But you know, I finally understand. I finally, I finally get how you feel looking at football games. So I'm looking at this guy. Yeah. What? What is this? What does it mean? Um, yeah. So you can do that. And once you're all satisfied with that, it's into the game, and then it all comes apart <laughs> as you are greeted by tiny. St- Dick men's sprites on a field of nothing but green seen from a side-on view and slightly sort of angled view. The ground, ground's ground gone, so the stadium's gone. That's gone. There's no stands. There's just a lot of small players charging about after an oversized egg. That's literally, <laughs> that's what it is. That egg, it is, it is, that, that. that ball is massive. It's a big egg. <laughs> it's like, Jesus Christ. I know they want to show it, but it's huge in comparison to the players. Or maybe they're just really little people. <laughs> I don't know, whatever there is. So after the kickoff, and this is weird, this bit, because after you kick it off, but the screen scrolls smoothly, but not fast enough to follow the ball, <laughs> which is kind of odd. So it's nice. It's nice smooth. I'll give it that. But it doesn't keep up. So when it finally sort of scrolls across and you've either caught it or you whatever, you get to run back and then, you know, rugby, I guess, happens. I don't know how else to describe it. Just rugby takes place. The little men charge about. The ball is passed. Scrums happen. <laughs> it all seems very aimless. There's just rugby going on. There's some enjoyment to be had, I guess. I did. There was one bit. Where I passed the ball out right across my line to a guy out on the wing, sort of thing, and then charged down the line. And that was quite hearing down the touchline. And I was like, that actually felt a bit like rugby. There was rugby happening. I don't know how else to describe it, but, but you know. But then I, I tried to run at an angle, and it, the, the, the sprite went all wrong. And the speed dropped out of everything, and it was those just... sprites are not made for angles. <laughs> no, so like, oh, what's going on? But it just feels a bit all over the place, and the controls are odd. When you're defending, there's no way to tackle, so you just run around. The person you're defending, stupid, press, stupid mistake. Pressing, 
pressing fire changes the player you're controlling. No, I want to. Everyone else is diving about the place, tackling. Yep. You just get to run around, going, "Hey, I'm just running, just running." It's like the beginning of that uh, Roy the Rovers game. I'm just running about. What are you doing? I'm just running. I can't dive. Stupid thing. So this, you just you you kind of just run run next to them and like, and you're just sort of a nuisance. I just imagined all you're doing is just shouting insults at them as they run. I don't know what you could be doing. Sometimes when one of your players does get tackled or whatever, by the way, there's a pile on a cares and it breaks apart, a scrum appears. Then there's two bars appear on the left-hand side of the screen in the top bit. And the scrum moves back and forth and the bar goes up and down. And and then suddenly it all breaks out again and rugby happens. Line outs occur, the ball goes out, but I couldn't control how far I threw it or anything. And it was just a massive egg. And you get to try for a conversion with a really crap overhead view with a line moving far too fast for a direction. And then a bar creeps yep. down the screen in the top corner. I did. I got one try, went for the conversion, ended up kicking it into the stand <laughs> to my right. Because <laughs> the thing was moving so fast. I was like, oh, that didn't work. Anyway, I can't say this really made me enjoy the sport that it was trying to portray. The bitty sprites and the massive hand egg are a complete mismatch. Look at the size of it when you do get a conversion. When you when well when they get a try and they kick it and it goes to the goal, it's massive. It almost doesn't fit through these sort of uprights. It's so big. <laughs> I guess the speed is okay, but the scrolling's annoying. It's got that sort of piecemeal scrolling. Whereas, which I found weird considering when it kicks off, it's smooth. <laughs> you know, it can't keep up with it. But it is smooth. Here it's just, it's you get to the edge and it goes dude across to the side again. It, I don't like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't get it. I don't know. There's there's a lot of green and some yellow dots on that screen, which is purporting to be a pitch of some string. But there's naff all else on it. There's no UI. There's no score. There's nothing on there. There's no ground. There's no atmosphere. It's an unappealing game this to watch and play. I suppose, though, by definition, this is the best rugby game that we've played. <laughs> Yes, yes, has to be said. Um, but on the flip side of the coin, it's also the worst. And that definition seems more <laughs> fitting to this. Um, I didn't like this. It got 39%. I guess that's probably about fair for three quid. If you like rugby, you're probably going to get some enjoyment maybe out of this oversized egg chasing thing. But I didn't like it. What about you? Oh, goodness. A bit of an oddball <laughs> game, isn't it? Uh, this weird non rugby like music. Boring text and raster title menu, but I suppose it was functional, which is kind of a word that comes back a lot in this. <laughs> Simple options-ish, but then there's more complexity under the hood that's unfathomable, I think. I'm not sure what's going on. I'm not sure how much of the complexity is it is sort of made available in terms of gameplay. So I don't know if it makes much of a difference what you're choosing because the game sort of just its own, does its own thing regardless. Yeah, Graphics in some parts are okay, some parts not. The game window is large, but it doesn't quite work, does it? Twitching players mid-try and not letting you tackle is the stupidest thing you could possibly have done in a rugby game that's fundamentally about tackling people. <laughs> yeah. um, so you took you took away the one thing that would have made it good. I mean, what's Dickie Davis going to do to that guy when he sort of reaches him on the cover? I, well, I think in that, I think actually Dickie Davis had laid that egg. Because <laughs> Dickie Davis, I don't know if you know this, but he, he went through a phase of laying really thick, leathery eggs. Um, and I'm guessing, you know, and if he stole them, he was like a raptor. You know, don't steal his eggs. He'll come after you and he's a fast runner. Anyway, Dickie Davis's egg-laying strangeness of the 80s aside, what I found with this was the similarity of every player in the game window meant it was really visually hard to decipher anyway. 
because it just changed to another plate that looked identical to the last one, just further down. Yeah. I think there may be rugby in there, like you say, but I thought it was pretty difficult to get too much of it. I mean, you, maybe you'd benefit with more time with this, I don't know, and get into grips with the controls and the strategy side. And, and I think maybe if you've got patience for that, maybe it might pay off if you know more about rugby than I do. And I, I don't know much more about it than, you know, than the basics. I'm not 100% sure about any of that. My main gripe of it is if you're going to make a rugby game, then focus on the key things for that game. Kicking drop goals and such is all well and good when you do those parts. And that seemed pretty neat, I suppose, but like you say, a bit weird. But fundamentally, from kickoff to scrum to tries, whatever, the main bulk of the game feels bitty and awkward, which it shouldn't. I, I don't know. It, maybe it's a good attempt, but like you say, it's the only attempt. So who knows? It's the benchmark game. So is it high benchmark or low? I have no idea. Nope. It's three quid though at the end of the day. Not really a simulator, is it? Because it's not quite rugby. I think Zap, maybe they were a little bit harsh though. I mean, I don't know. It's, maybe there's more gaming if you persevere with it and you like rugby. I don't know. We've said that about a few sims of this, not necessarily of the budget sims, but there's some sports games we've played where we said a little bit more bit more time with it. Maybe you'd have got something from it. But that said, I didn't really think it was very good. Maybe it deserved a little bit more than 39%. I don't know. But for three quid, I mean... But um, nah. I think you need to <laughs> no. really like rugby. I don't know. Maybe rugby is just not a game that converts well to C64. Hey, good one. Hey. Yeah. So uh, nah, no. Stick to hand egg, I think. Yeah, absolutely. There we go. Yeah. International. For God's sake, never steal a man's leathery egg. Just don't do it. <laughs> that, that's just that. laid it. He's never very, very attached to it. Usually by a leather usually by a leather cord. Well, I was going to say, it'd be covered in a fine, thin sort of crusty skin, which is called the Velcrum. Don't ever touch that. <laughs> Yeah, never touch uh, Dickie Davis's Velcrum ever, ever. Um, and on that note, <laughs> that's International Rugby Simulator. <laughs> um, all right, there we go. That's our first lot of games for this part. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> there was one good one in there, at least. Anyway, <laughs> what in the nest? <laughs> yeah, there's one good egg in there. Out it of is, the three and that's what that guy's nicked. He's running away He's with it. the one good egg. He's got the MicroPro soccer egg. <laughs> he has. Yeah, there's one good egg there. Um, we're going to take a quick break. I think we need one after that lot, um, for those last couple. Um, and we'll be back. We're going to be talking about uh, UK albums in February 1989. So uh, uh, stay with us and, and watch for the uh, Velcrum layer. <laughs> And we are back. Um, let's get in some albums. February 1989. What was going on? What were our number ones this month? Well, for the first week, we had Technique from New Order. They're back in number one form. <laughs> Do you know, New Order are a bit of an anomaly for me. I know a few tracks by them, all the ones that everyone knows. and But this album, pretty much complete mystery to me. And I, I totally tuned out of New Order at this point. Yeah, well, they've gone for, I mean... There's a really good article we will note it in the about the making of this album and how they basically buggered off to Ibiza because Ibiza was mm. 1989 was just sort of on the cusp of becoming what Ibiza was going to become like the party island it was starting yeah, to become yeah. that. So New Order went out there because they wanted to get in on this sort of new sound but they thought it was going to be yeah. more like acid house and stuff what they were hearing in the UK. And when they went out there they heard this what was you know became this balearic beats sort of thing. Yeah, so yeah. that's what sort of informed a lot of this album. Now the problem with that was that while they were out there they did very little. They had like about three oh. parts of three songs recorded because all they did oh, was you know Peter Hook and uh, Bernard somebody just sat by the pool and it was just the uh, I can't remember his name, but the drummer who was just sort of sat in the you know, studio trying to get drum tracks together, and they were like, "Oh, the hi hat sounds wrong." It's an article sort of thing. So any, essentially, they ended up going back to Peter Gabriel's Real World Studios back in the UK and recording the rest of it there. Uh, and Peter Hook 
didn't like it. He wasn't happy because, you know, he wanted to go in a more rock direction and, you know, mm. Bernard Sumner was very much, you know, no, we need to go in this dancey direction. And there's a real schism on the album, which you can hear in some of the tracks. And now the, the sing, main single off this fine time is bloody awful. Um, mm. I'd listen to it on the back of this, but um, yeah, it seems like an album that where the, the band weren't getting on and there's sort of comments in there. Like they weren't in the studio together. They go in, Oh, I've done the drum track. Well, I'll go in tonight and put the thingy drip track down. Oh, I'll do the bass line yeah. tomorrow. They weren't playing as a band anymore. Um, mm. So figures, yeah. So it was this. Apart from them coming back to release, what was it? Regret was it in eighty ninety three? This is a good track. Yeah, I mean, whatever that album was, I can't remember the name of the album. What they did in ninety three, um, but th- that was it really. So. Yeah, New Order, they'd, they'd sort of become a... I think they're just people going in different directions by this point, 10 years after the sort of yeah. you know, demise of Joy Division. But not for mm. me, this album. Not for me at all. I think Brown no. Source likes it, though. He really likes this sort of thing. He does. He does. Next week, after that, we could have had The Raw and the Cooked by Fine Young Cannibals. Mm. Title. Yeah, it's a good title. It's the, uh, the second and final studio album. Um, the yeah. Honk's final honk. <laughs> That's what they should have called it. <laughs> should have called it that. Don't the call it the wrong honk. The honk. <laughs> yeah, the last honk. Apparently, this is considered to be an eclectic, varied album, taking influences from numerous genres, including Motown, soul, rock, funk, British beat, and pop. This is, the, this is the one with "She Drives Me Crazy" on, isn't it? Uh, or was that the first one? I don't know. I'm not a big exponent of one. the fine young cannibals. It could not. They were been. neither fine nor young nor cannibals, as it turned out. No, but "She Drives Me Crazy" is the only track I like by them. And they should have done the fine young cannonballs and done a duet with. Tommy and Bobby Ball, Bobby Cannon and all that. <laughs> Cannon and Ball and the can- Fine Young Cannonballs. The Fine Young Cannonballs. It would have been fine great. Fine Young Cannonballs. They should have done that, yeah. Um, There's still time. <laughs> you, you well, there isn't. Tell. Well, one of the cannon, I think, is it Tommy, Bobby Ball's dead, isn't he? So they can't, you know. They can't do it now. Rest in peace, Bobby. Or, or, the, or they could have picked another uh, famous 80s duo under the Fine Young Crankies. Oh, uh, no. They're not fine. <laughs> not they weren't young, young either. either. <laughs> no, no. Despite what they were portraying. <laughs> no. Jimmy Cranky was about 90. <laughs> he wasn't that old <laughs> poor old jimmy for the last two weeks though if you'd had enough of new order and, and the final cannibals you could have really cheered yourself up by having listened to a new flame by simply red it wouldn't have cheered you but you know it's a mystery this it's a bloody mystery this Why? was a massive success worldwide i mean massive yeah it's huge it was the, the band's first uk number one album and certified get this seven times platinum by the bpi for sales of 2.1 million copies in the uk alone what the actual f? <laughs> what was on it? I'm not. I didn't even look because I, I hate just, simply if red. It's actually it's got a, it's a picture disc. When you take it out, it's just a picture of a, a large bread cock, um, <laughs> or the, or the bee rock as he likes to call it. Every year, Mick Hucknall makes a bread cock, which he then distributes like a wicker man through the oh. village of um, Flagstone. Do you know what tracks on that album? If you don't yeah, know me, me by guess. now, you love me, baby. Oh, there you go. We do know you by now. You bread making crazy, and we don't like you. Get out, shuttlecock hairdos. Not a good thing. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, someone bought it. Want me? Yeah, two point one million people bought it. That's just in the UK, no isn't it? And uh, yeah, exactly. It's crazy. That's, yeah. that's too high a percentage of the population who have that somewhere. I mean, it kept him in bread for the rest of his life. It's still, he's still, he's you know, he wears bread suits. It's very, un, very unnatural. <laughs> yeah, what kind suit. of bread? Um, well, it varies, but right. um, if you it's it's not so bad if he's in public. You can sort of get away with it, but when he's at the swim pool and he puts on his bread <laughs> swim shorts, puts on his puts on his sourdough <laughs> trunks. It's exactly. It's never a pleasant experience. There's a faint whiff of fustiness about that anyway, <laughs> because it's sourdough. 
<laughs> it's not good. Yeah. Well, you know that it's been it's been storing those pants in the cupboard for about <laughs> six months in order to get the fermentation going. That's you, grim, you isn't wonder it? where you wonder where that faint faint twang of yeast is coming from. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's his, uh, that was his aftershave, wasn't it, that he launched? Yeast for men. Yeast, twang of yeast. <laughs> twang of yeast, yeah. <laughs> Terrible. But yes, uh, he is famous for bread clothing, actually, but that's, you know, that's a whole separate issue um, for him, yeah. actually. Um, yeah. Never mind. Simply Red. Simply Dread would have been good, wouldn't it? Sort of thing. So it was a, yeah. Yeah. Uh, should have been a ju- just Dread covers band. Cover- S- Simply Fred. Just get Fred from uh, Fred, Flintstone, Fred Flintstone, actually. Could yeah. be a solo album, yeah. Yeah. Or Wright said Simply Fred. <laughs> As a mashup. It writes itself. It writes itself, <laughs> that stuff. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Come on, Mick, get on with it. <laughs> 5th of February. Straighten at number one was Technique by New Order, which we talked about. I didn't realise they were as popular as that, but. Who? Were. Simply Red. No, New Order. I think they're one of those bands sort of thing about this point. With I mean, don't forget, they'd released the biggest 12-inch of all time. Yeah, you know, yeah. It was massive. It was like 40 yeah, inches. Yeah. Blue Monday, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't be played on any normal. Uh, <laughs> you had to have a special record, record player to deck, play yeah. it. <laughs> it. Blotted out the sky for a while. And you held that it was like Mr. Burns's sunblocker. Blue, <laughs> yeah. That's why they called it. They called it a Blue Monday. <laughs> exactly where the name the came from. Yeah, exactly. Um, the massive it was. So yeah, you've got to factor in the fact that they'd, they'd had quite a lot of big hits by the, around yeah, yeah, mid eighties yeah, onwards. So yeah, I think yeah. this album was quite. Um, the interesting thing about what it said in that article, just to go back to it, was that they were owners, or because of Factory Records, weren't they? But they were part owners yeah. of uh, the Hacienda, or founders of the they Hacienda were, yeah. Club. And the Hacienda was was experiencing financial difficulties, why the studio needed them to go back. Sorry, the yeah, the Factory Records needed them to go back in the studio and get an album out. Because they needed the money to fund the Hacienda. <laughs> Crazy. Isn't that, it's good. It's an interesting article. It's all pre Happy Mondays, I take it, and all that. Yeah, yeah. That the same? yeah. yeah. In at number two, 5th of February, uh, Mystery Girl by Roy Orbison. Get this. That was his 22nd album. 22nd. 22 albums. I mean, that's a lot for. I didn't realize he'd made more than three. So I didn't know he had 22 songs. Yeah, well, he's got obviously got a lot. Maybe it's just one song 22 times. It's a bit clever <laughs> like that, Roy Orbison. <laughs> Maybe. Um, anyway, it was uh, it was uh, his last album to be recorded during his lifetime as he completed the album in November 1988. That was a month before his death at the age of 52. And it was released posthumously by Virgin Records on January the 31st, 1989. Of course, it's mm. got You Got It on it. Anything you need. You got it. You that's got right. It. Anything yeah. at all. There you go. Oh, there you go. That's it. <laughs> Like he's like he's back in the room with us. <laughs> That's a good impression. Um, yeah. At number eight, Electric Youth by Debbie Gibson. Second album by American singer-songwriter Debbie Gibson. Highest charting album. Yeah, wow. yeah, absolutely. Of her career, of her career being insincere, um, <laughs> yeah. staying at the top of the US Billboard album charts for five weeks. That's some going, isn't it? That's not yeah, bad. Yeah, pretty good. And number eight in the UK album chart, which wow. is interesting. I didn't know she had enough songs for an album, but I do now. I do now. Well, two albums. Two albums. Bet she's got two third whole album. albums. Yes, yes. It's uh, it's got it's like smell the glove. It's uh, <laughs> le- lesser known release that one. <laughs> it is. Uh, in at number twenty three is After the War by Gary Moore. Odd thing that, that rhymes. Um, it does. Seventh studio album from uh, Mister Moore. There apparently still festooned with Celtic influences. I didn't get that, but your favourite no. uh, singer, singer songwriter. <laughs> Andrew Eldritch from the Sisters of Mercy is backing vocals on at least three songs on that. Apparently. Well, I went and listened to one of them, Speak for Yourself, and I put the link there. And when it started, if you had told me, just said, listen to this, I, I, I thought it was Megadeth. Yeah. 
It sounds dead like it's like it's like sounds like a Megadeth track, and then he starts singing like it's not it's not Dave Mustaine. He's not Megadeth. <laughs> he's not but um to be fair his voice is better it wasn't it wasn't actually too bad the song i listened to that speak for yourself it was okay yeah, it's all right it was all right but, um, I, didn't, I, couldn't hear, out. I couldn't hear andrew eldrich on it though but then again you wouldn't would you because he's subordable no. you know you exactly. just feel it you just feel his vocals <laughs> it had just provided some kind of vocal um <laughs> sort of uh drum track that was inaudible to ordinary humans but drum machines he speaks in fluent drum machines so <laughs> Um, all the drum machines around were like, you know, looking at each other and nodding if they could do that. In 4-4. Four, four. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, uh, uh, uh. It's how he does. That's how he speaks. That's how he laughs. He laughs in 4-4. Four, four. Ha, 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 doesn't he? That's how he does it. So. <laughs> he does. He's very good at that. He's very good. He's very funny. Um, in number 34 is the great radio controversy by Tesla. I don't know anything about Tesla, and I didn't up to this point remember ever hearing them and then i still don't and i'm also yeah. glad i hadn't because they just sound like about a million other bands nothing really great the american hard rock band self type you know they're self-declared yeah and they just sound like every other band glam metally band type shit that comes out at that time you know late in the day as well yeah you've written here the album sound has been described as glam metal to play inside the cab of a tractor bluesy denim and downright wholesome what does that even mean i don't know that's that's a direct quote I know so, it's a quote. I, I know, know you haven't written it. Not from it, me. But... No, I didn't write that. I didn't say it. <laughs> who, who, what's that mean? Um, I, I'm guessing that they were driving along and a guy driving a tractor bluesy who was in denim. <laughs> um, they're like, have you heard this? And he's like, well, that sounds like the kind of thing I'd play inside my cab. Inside my tractor bluesy. Write that down. <laughs> <laughs> whatever. Uh, well, anyway, I listened to this one track off there, which you, which you linked to. It sounded like Iron Maiden, but not in a good way. Yeah, just every, so it's the piece together bits of a million bands. You know, you could pick out, you know, different bands if you listen to it different ways. Yeah. And, uh, like a, like a Tesla derivative. car. Yeah, yeah. Number 46, Whoops, There Goes the Neighbourhood by the Blow Monkeys. Goodness me, that reached new epic proportions of Blanco <laughs> that I didn't <laughs> that think really were possible. Too much, too much fucking sax. <laughs> oh, the sax on it. I was like, hey. oh, man. as soon as it began with that, I'm like, oh, this is the fourth album issued from them. Apparently, it presented a step towards incorporation of more dancey elements. I didn't get that. I thought it was horrible. So um, yeah. I don't know. Blow Monk isn't a good name for anything, and nor is it a good thing to do. No, I don't like it. And that that track that you likened to, it doesn't have to be this way. In the, in the video, his hair is so coiffured that light just cannot escape from it. <laughs> it can't. <laughs> just, just like no, no one's hair should be like that. No, no I don't. I don't get it. And don't go around blowing on monkeys or blowing monkeys unless you're a bloody monkey. Don't do it. Don't do it. Number fifty-five. No. Number fifty-five. Shakespeare, Alabama, by Diesel Park West. Uh, <laughs> even I, even I didn't like this. It might, album, might have been me, but, but no. No, I'm not sure because I know I'm not saying that you have an affinity for you know, but you are an, a fan of indie rock music, and I don't think this is really that. Um, this just felt like it was like kind of horrible, jingly jangly indie. That I, it, it, I think good people who were into their proper indie rock music as such or indie bands. That this wasn't it. This was kind of the something else altogether. But yeah. it sort of got branded into the same nest. But it's not of the same egg layer. Um, so um, <laughs> no. I didn't like it. I, I never have really liked this kind of jingly jangly sort of you know indie rock type stuff. I don't think that's a fair name for it though. I think it's just crappy. Whatever. Yeah, you might it's, call no that. it's no, not it's good. It's not Number good. Number sixty-seven is Fabulous Disaster by Exodus. Uh, yeah, American thrash metal band. So that for me meant walk away, just walk away. And I did. <laughs> yeah, I took all my gasoline and pissed off. I did. I did yeah, I drank it. <laughs> just to get away from this lot. Yeah, exactly. I listened to, I listened to one track and I was like, hey. And I was just like, what's that you're drinking? Gasoline. <laughs> ha, ha, ha. Good, good, good. Pretty much. 
12th of Feb, at number one, we had The Raw and the Cooked by uh, Honk and the Honkers. At number five, we had Spike by Elvis Costello. 12th studio album by Elvis Costello. Prodigious. Now, other than Oliver's Army, I don't know much about him. And this is his first album, apparently, without the attractions. I didn't know that that was a thing for him. So that shows how little I know about him. Apparently, (laughs) that's quite a big deal. Elvis Costello and the attractions. Yeah, I didn't know that. that. So, but I know also, for a long time, I thought an Elvis Costello was a cigar. So... (laughs) I don't know much about him, clearly. But that said, I found an interesting BBC documentary thing that was about that particular thing. And he's actually quite an interesting guy, having watched that. He is. Um, And I think that's the thing. I was never a massive fan of his music, but I always found him as like, just doing his own thing and making some interesting tunes every now and again. So he'd just sort of pop up with a tune and you'd be like, oh, that's okay. Mm, Like he'd do something different and you'd be like, oh, it's Elvis Costello. He's still going. Okay, fair enough. And, you know, just kind of carved his own sort of niche which yes, I have no, no problem with. He's, he's all right. And and, all, and to be fair, I'll always like him for Oliver's Army because it's a great yeah, tune. Yeah, it's the same. It is a it great, is track, a great so, song. Yeah. Uh, number 20 is Thunder and Consolation by New Model Army. Fourth studio album from New Model Army. I don't know. I'm not I'm not quite into it, so I'd leave that more. It's maybe more up your road it than It very much that. is more. I gave this a listen uh, yesterday and today, and I thought this was great. I really like this album. Some I, re- I recognised a lot of the tunes on it, more than I thought I would do, but a lot of them I was listening to it go, mm. I know this, I know this one, which I think may have been because my friend at the time, Mr. Adcock, he was into these, so I think he probably played me this, but I don't think I was in the right frame of mind to actually get it at the time, but I did recognise a lot of them, and I, and I really enjoyed this album, so uh, this has gone on my playlist. Mm. It's really good. And he sounds dead Irish. <laughs> it does. Does sound Irish, doesn't it? I told you, didn't I? I said the other yeah, week. It I does. said because they come from Bradford. And I went. He sounds Irish. They do. Yeah, they've got that kind of a weird Irishness about them. I don't know quite where it's from. But His it vocals, is some of some of the words he says, words, his yeah. intonation comes across as slightly. It doesn't sound Irish. like he's from Bradford, does he? No. I no. played it to my partner earlier on. She went. It sounds like he's from London. I was like, no, we don't. That man can literally confuse you with his voice. He just <laughs> he really can. He's got a confusatron built into his throat. <laughs> It's like, it's like a babel fish. He can sing. He can sing in any nondescript accent you can name. <laughs> I played someone else and said he sounded French. Like, What's exactly. Going well, on he's because he's uh, Ramirez from um, <laughs> from the Highlander. That's who he is. So he just Ramirez. is an Egyptian. <laughs> in a... <laughs> he's Ramirez. All right. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, good album. Good album. Yeah. Thunder and Constellation. Yeah. Not I my like cup of tea, tea, but I appreciate that. You know, it is somebody's tea. It's my tea. Um, what isn't my tea is that number 22, this was Foundation by Ten City. Yeah, doubt. This was their debut album, right? And in the blurb, it says they're an American, Chicago, Illinois based RB and house music act um, that enjoyed a number of club hits and urban radio hits in the late 80s and early 90s and was one of the first exponents of Deep House. Now, I've listened to a lot of their stuff, and I can tell you, I didn't get no Deep House vibes. <laughs> <laughs> maybe uh, maybe Brown Sauce can correct us and he'll come back and go, you didn't listen to album. Blah, 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 blah. You know, he's like a mentat from uh, June. His eyes will roll back and he just start re- recalling lots of facts and figures to you from his deep, dark memory chip. But I didn't get a deep house from that at all. No, I thought this was more of a shallow bungalow. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, more of a broken shed vibe. Yeah, certainly there's no a deep house that I know of. Yeah, it's a, it's a non-underpinned garage that is prone to falling down. <laughs> That's what it is. Yes, unique fixer-upper, all right. <laughs> Number 23, Pop Said by the Darling Buds. We've spoke about them before, haven't we? Blondie meets the primitives. I thought this was pretty good, actually. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's okay. Yeah. It's, it's, yep. it's, it's a light, frothy souffle. It is, but you know what? In a sea of you know other stuff, it was pretty It's pretty standout. The, the production on it is what I noticed. Obviously, yeah. you know, it's the good, the good songs and all that, and I get all that. 
but it was the production that stuck out for me because it's such a bright sounding album. It sounds bright. The mix is bright. I really like that. Definitely in Dobbly, that. Definitely in Dobbly. <laughs> Dobbly, yeah. I, I did like the, yeah, it floated through my transom quite nicely. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty good. Pretty good. And at number 25 is True Love Ways by Buddy Holly. Uh, it's, you know, there's a million and one Buddy Holly compilations of the same songs. If you're wondering why this is in there, these are the only new albums that came out all month. <laughs> there were yeah, no others. It figures. It figures. So you know, normally it's a bit I wouldn't compilations on, but it is. Like I yeah. wouldn't, you know, maybe we'd talk about number 38, Dylan and the Dead. Um, by uh, Dylan from uh, Magic Roundabout and the Grateful Dead. Yeah, I don't know. I listened to the I listened to the clip off YouTube. You know, I wasn't impressed with how it sounded, but I'm like, I don't particularly relate to Dylan, and I'm not overly fond of the Grateful Dead either. Nor do I know much about them. So for me, this was just kind of deadies, deadies or deadites, something like that. In it, I don't know. I know that they did the you know the Twilight Zone theme as much as I know about the Grateful Dead. Oh. Yeah, I've, I've, there, there are a couple of bands that have completely passed me by as well. Oh, not bands. Obviously, Bob Dylan's a solo artist. I know yeah, some. Yeah. You know, I know some Bob Dylan stuff. Usually, yeah, the ones we all know. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, but it is. Yeah, but Grateful Dead completely. No. Yeah, over my head. Something else I wish that had passed me by is at number forty-six. This is a "Wanna Have Some Fun" by Samantha Fox. Goodness me, third album from third. I can't believe it. Have, have we seen the other two? I mean, how have we not come across them? She's released about 900 singles. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, this was released by Jive um, Maybe they didn't make records. it to the charts. Well, it, the album features production from previous collaborators. Now, listen to this list. Full Force, Stock Aiken and Waterman, Steve Power and Steve Lavelle, as well as new collaborators such as Rob and Ferdy Boland, Kevin Saunderson, Fred Zarr, and Chris Sandagaras. Who the hell are these people? <laughs> Kevin Saunderson sounds familiar, but I don't know just why. Be a, it's just a list of names. Anyway, it's not great, is it? And I want to have some fun track. I don't know if we looked at that one or not. I had a quick look at it and I wished I hadn't. So I it's, it's a horrible... If you imagine, if you take all, all that sound that we've been talking about, the you know, the popular sound of the time, which is all that Sam Fox has ever really done, the you know, a wagon goes rolling by with a, you know, a house track on it or a, of some variation and she'll come out with a version of it. This one's no different to that. It's got a Paul Abdulli type vibe about it that kind of you know staccato dance pop i guess you call it it's crap and i suspect the album probably is as well if it's the same kevin saunderson i don't know how i know this i've just heard that name but he's an american electronic dance music dj often credited as being among the pioneers and originators of techno in particular helped define detroit techno the early style of this music genre yeah when he was in the studio when they when they were he <laughs> probably it, just walked like, past this. Is that Sam Fox? Put yeah. put him on the label. <laughs> well, the the word collaborator is doing a lot of the heavy lifting there, isn't I it? I think so. And that that could be, you know, he could have picked a pen up and passed it to somebody. Oh, thanks for that. He collaborated. Yeah, put him on the list. Yeah. Third album, yeah. though. Third. Yeah, I know. And the last, I hope. Please, Sam, stop making music now. Yeah. You're done. <laughs> I know. Only a few left, actually, for the month. Uh, 19th February, uh, in it straight in at number one was A New Flame by Simply Red. Yeah, I mean, it's um, bikini. And then there was nothing until number 61, which was The Best Years of Our Lives by Neil Diamond. Now, that's his 18th album. <laughs> 18th? <laughs> that's a big diamond. <laughs> 18th. <laughs> 18 carat. That's it, exactly. That's shiny, shiny diamond. Everyone now knows Neil Diamond for one song. But, you know, my mum really liked Neil Diamond, so I've, I've yeah. probably heard more Neil Diamond than I care to think about. But I, I knew Neil Diamond at this point because of the remake of the Jazz Singer film. Yes, which is actually very good. Yeah, it is. I remember um, there's lots of good tunes in that, I seem to remember. Yes, there is um, indeed, yeah. yeah. He's a very good singer. But, Diamond. Um, 
but now he's just known for Sweet Caroline, isn't he? Yeah, well, no doubt about that. Twenty uh, sixth February in at number four was the Big Area by then Jericho. Yeah, you liked? Uh, did you like them or did you like this album? I can't no, remember. I like the was... one track, Big Area. Oh, that's it. Yeah, <laughs> it's the one song they did that was any good. It was really good. Apparently, apparently got Belinda Carlisle on some of the backing vocals on that. I don't know. That's a bit weird, isn't it? Yeah, maybe she was just there again. She's you know, wandering just, past. He recorded her in the shower. Probably shouldn't have. <laughs> she didn't know he was there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. But finally, at number 30 is The Lover in Me by Sheena Easton. Yes, there she is in her shiny glory. I know. Nine albums. Who knew? <laughs> I didn't. No, I didn't. I didn't know, I didn't know she'd done one album. <laughs> so, so, nine? Nine, you say? Jesus. Um, Apparently, this was a debut for MCA Records, big American label. So the album has a more urban R&B sound, no kidding, um, than uh, previous recordings, which were, and of course, um, some well-known people involved here, Reed, Babyface and John, they did loads of that sort of stuff. Of course, sorry, Babyface and John, Jellybean, Benitez. It's, it's, you know, if you listen to it, you can just hear it. It may as well just yeah. you know, have a picture of a jelly bean on the front. What we said about the single one, the, the video had just the ratio of normal people to sexy people in that video was ridiculous. It was, oh, it's, uh, it's outrageous. The, you know, the, it was the, even the even the cover of the album is crazy good. Yeah, and it's a, quite a change from what she, what she, you know, she's gone through the. I, I know she's gone through the Prince ringer. Yeah, and they've obviously shortened her neck because I don't know if it's something <laughs> to do with the hairstyle, but her neck looks the, different. I think it's the hairstyle and and I probably know, she the, looks ang- a, the angle. She looks like she's probably been singing too much with wet, wet, wet. And the left picture, we've got a picture of her from the early eighties here in front of us, and a picture of her from the late eighties. We'll maybe share this somehow in the show notes, whatever. Maybe we won't, but you could Just Google go it yourself. Just go, go look at yourself. It. She looks very different in the early in the early eighties to how she looked in the release of this album, her ninth album. So, mm, she does. Good and there album, you go. Though. That's it. That was all your albums for February nineteen eighty nine. Not a great bunch. That's it. No, uh, not really. Thingy was my pick out um new model army but there you go yeah prim- um, they're not the primitives um the other, uh, one, like the the primitives. other, the other ones darling buds yeah darling probably buds the two me, best there anyway there you go we're going to take a quick break we've uh, gone through the albums we've got three more games still to come some big games as well so please do stick around because uh, we're going to get into them just after this break And yes, we are back. We've got three more games still to get through in this episode. And the first one, well, is it a biggie? It probably is. It probably should be. I don't know. You tell me, Graham. It is time for Revenge of the Jedi. Sorry, Return of the Jedi. (laughs) Based on the 1984 Atari arcade, this is Return of the Jedi, as uh, Old Redfuss would have said. <laughs> Return of With the Jedi. Lee. <laughs> 995 this was, though. 995 pence. It's a lot of pence, that. 61% though. Mm, something whiffs a bit, doesn't it? The arcade hardware for this, because it's an arcade conversion. So the, Now, I've put the arcade hardware in for this for a reason. This was two 6502s running at 2.5 megahertz. That's it. That was all the all the CPUs it had in it. And it had four pokey sound chips in it. Pokey. That's that's yeah, that's that's the Atari sound chip. Yeah. So this is basically an Atari 800 XL with with just with a few more chips in it. Yeah. Crazy. So just I thought that was just interesting because this is an obviously an arcade conversion. Anyway, so this was released uh, by it's published by Domark or Domark who would Obviously, um, done the other Star Wars conversions for the C64, which yeah. was Empire Strikes Back and Star Wars, obviously. It was copyright 10 Gen. A bit interesting, actually, that 10 Gen are the console 
because Atari at, by this point had been split into two. I don't know if you know that. Been split into two defi- separate div- divisions. Atari was one thing and Tengen was the console and computer wing of Atari. And for weird licensing reasons and for weird contractual reasons, Atari weren't allowed to release things on consoles directly like that anymore because of the way the company had been split. So they had to form Tengen, which was another name for the central character uh, in the game Go. Um, so Atari's from that game and so is Tengen, just so you know. Okay, so oh, okay. Obviously, foot and right behind behind the scenes is old George Lucas's in a Lucasfilm where somewhere involved, of course, it's, well, it's Return of the Jedi. At that point, it was pre-Disney and everything else. This was coded by Colin Pimlet or Pimlot. Graphics, David Hocraft, and the musician was Dave Kelly. Okay. Now, um, I've always had a bit of a love-hate relationship with the Return of the Jedi arcade in a similar way that I had to the Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom arcade. And I think because these franchises are a fairly significant part, thinking about it, a fairly significant part of my childhood in a kind of core way. So whenever I saw these in the arcade, I always played them. I still do. Even the Vector Star Wars arcades still get looking with me. So I would have been about 10 in 1983 when Return of the Jedi hit the UK cinemas. And I was about 11, 12 when I first saw this in an arcade, I think, somewhere around there. So, And I was quite Star Wars obsessed, as were a lot of people of my age range at that time. Oh, God, yeah. you know, we had loads of Star Wars figures, all over the toys. I had a Millennium Falcon, an Atta, a range of about 13 figures. You know, you get them. They were, it was such a good price range for a toy Star Wars outside of some of the ships the figures were always kind of a good gift to give somebody if they were into Star Wars because and the figures were great back then so mm-hmm. you know, it's it's of a particular vibe for me with Return of the Jedi and the Return of the Jedi game is a break in the vector formula thankfully this time we're on an isometric tip the structure of the game is similar to the other Star Wars arcade games in that you need to run through a series of quote-unquote scenes that play out mini sequences if you if you like from the film in the case of the C64 Return of the Jedi game, there are four-ish main sequences. The speeder bike chase on Endor, piloting the Scoutwalker to destroy the Death Star shield generator, piloting the Millennium Falcon, flanked by two X-Wing fighters, and attacking the Superstar Destroyer, and then pending the destruction of the, the shield generator, flying into the superstructure of the Death Star in the Millennium Falcon and triggering the cataclysmic final explosion. So that's kind of, you know, that's the, the thematics of the game. The arcade worked in kind of a similar way to the C64 version, Neither are very good in some senses in that they chop and change things around a bit. The arcade is split into levels and each of the levels is a mix of the game scenes with varying difficulty. You don't get this as such with the C64 version as much. It kind of works the same way, but you still start with the speeder bike chase. You mix between the scout walker and the attacking superstar destroyer sequence, obviously, in terms of the context of the way it works. And then you get the flying into the Death Star bit. All of these, like I said, are in isometric view and in the medium res on the C64. And though the game does run at quite a pace, actually, there's quite a bit of content missing. The arcade has a lot of hazards, obstacles, speech, Star Wars samples, things that make it Star Wars. And that's always been the, the big thing about all of these conversions is they lose most of that. So this does still have some of the, you know, some of those things, but it's yeah, the arcade's got the hazards, the obstacles, attacking speeder bikes, you know, more often TIE fighters. And this increases as you work through the levels and the difficulties played out that way. The C64, not as much of that. Also, the levels are shorter and quite, in terms of backgrounds and the sort of, quite repetitive understandable i suppose given that you've got 64k anyway with some of the more sort of exciting elements of the arcade missing altogether i don't know it feels like this may be a little bit of compromise too far in some of this but it plays okay i suppose one of the examples i can cite is that when you exit in the death star while you're being chased by the explosion and and for me that's quite an important part of the context of the game since it's the pinnacle of the whole film in the arcade you find the core of the death star and the ship flips and you've got to dash out the flames sort of leaping behind you it kind of happens in the C64. You don't change direction. It doesn't feel quite as panic-stricken. 
and just kind of moment, momentarily <laughs> menaced by a kind of orange curtain. It's a bit, it's a bit, it just doesn't feel quite as dramatic no, as not. perhaps it should. The controls are all joystick, and since the game is isometric, your left and right will move you north, west, and southeast, and up and down will move you northeast to southwest. Fire shoots if that is pertinent in that particular bit. Obviously, when the game shifts angle from playing bottom left to top right to bottom right to top left, which it does, say when you're controlling the Skywalker in that scene or the attacking the Star Destroyer sequence, the controls are just according to the direction. So it's actually not that difficult to control in that way. The aim of the game is obviously to make it through these sequences without hitting obstacles, getting rammed or shot. If that happens, you crash and explode and lose one of your five lives and try again. There are restart points. So if you do get to a certain point in the level, you don't just go back back, back to the beginning. You do start from where you left off. So you've got mini progression. That's the same as the arcade as well, which is nice. And the score in it is linked to your progress through the sequence, the same as the arcade, and increases as you progress. So the more you, further you get, the higher your score goes, which is pretty much the same as where the arcade works. If you complete these sequences, then you move to the next one and repeat. There are little end points. So when you get to the end of the Endor Village, which is at the end of the speeder bike sequence, there's a funny series of waving Ewoks and an oddly blocky C-3PO kind of there. <laughs> yeah. So going waving, you get a little bit of music. It's all right. That's the same as the arcade. Maybe not the same fidelity as the arcade, but it's there. When the shield generator gets destroyed at the end of the Scout Walk sequence, that's there as well. The, you know, the rest are a bit wishy-washy. There isn't really an end for the Millennium Falcon sequences which seems weird. And the way the game sort of flips between Scoutwalker sequence and Millennium Falcon is really disconcerting. And I felt one of the worst things about it, very annoying, because it just flips between the two and it's really it's disconcerting. It does it in the arcade as well, which is no, not great. So I don't know, it's, maybe it's a limitation, I suppose, with some of these things I've mentioned. And, and I guess in a way, it's that chopping and changing of things is an attempt to kind of mirror the way the film segues between those things, because the film does that. So the film kind of chops and changes scene all the way through that final sort of act. The third act of Star Wars, the final act of Star Wars, that is a series of things happening at the same time, and it cuts between them all. So, and, and you sort of yeah. you follow the logic of it, because you've got obviously things going on. Shield generator needs to be blown up. Attack of the rebel fleet against the Death Star, Luke fighting Darth Vader and the Emperor and those three things are happening at the same time so it, maybe it's mirroring that and why they don't ever have the Darth Vader Luke Skywalker battling a Re- Return of the Jedi game is beyond me because they couldn't do that in an isometric scrolling manner yeah I guess maybe I guess it doesn't suit isometric. I don't know it doesn't have to be that I don't know anyway it's not there so the three difficulty levels are present in the C64 version so easy medium and hard with the selection screen following the way the arcade works and the game to a degree does the same. In the title screen, we have a fairly bouncy but somewhat simplified version of the Yub Nub music that features in the original end sequence of Return of the Jedi film. This was later replaced, as we all know, by in the enhanced versions of the films by some kind of naff, half-assed Pan Pipes moods business. I didn't like that. Rubbish. Give, give Rubbish. me Yub Nub or give me nothing. Yeah, Yep. Uh, the graphics on the C64 throughout are not... Actually, I don't think that you could say they were terrible. They look Star Wars-like. They look a bit like the arcade. They look like an 8-bit version of it. And they're a reasonable attempt, I think. I have to say, they're a reasonable attempt. The trees look like trees. Endor looks like Endor. Millennium Falcon, blocky though it may be, looks Millennium Falcon-shaped. They look like what they're supposed to be in a simplified C64 8-bit way. There's some nice touches on the Endor levels. Luckily, Endor is very brown and green. That lends itself nicely to a <laughs> Commodore game. Um, I mean, it pretty much guarantees the C64 color palette's going to cope. Green and brown is C64 territory. You know, a bit of yellow in there as well for good measure. Um, the Millennium Falcon levels are less graphically successful. The stars in the background on the Star Destroyer attack are some kind of scrolling paint spillage. And while the Star Destroyer is there, there are flickering bugs in there in that part. And it's, it's essentially kind of a shoot-em-up bit. doesn't play well, feels... It just doesn't feel very good. It doesn't feel very responsive, and it's just not very great. And it flips between the other bit anyway. 
with the Skywalker bit, which is also, again, pointlessly, annoyingly difficult, which all of this is. Um, navigating the Death Star superstructure, it's okay. It's kind of a weird version of the, almost like a, it's like a isometric version of the flying through the walls bit of Delta, which is, you know, or Scramble even has it in. It's yeah. rock hard to do it. If you don't know, if you don't accelerate forward a bit and, you know, and do it, you're not going to make it through. It's very difficult, but you might make it through with a bit of perseverance. The graphics kind of look like a simplified version of what's in the arcade. I'm being kind when I say simplified, but it, it sort of works. But again, there's that Millennium Falcon, which is, I don't know why, but with the Millennium Falcon out of all the things in the game, I noticed the blockiness in that particular level more than ever. And I was like, ah, it's the blockiest Millennium Falcon level. It's like Lego. <laughs> I don't know. It's such an average game of a great film. It kind of beggars belief, really. But that's the arcade as well. It's the same problem we have with the Indiana Jones arcade. It's just, they're just a bit dull as arcade games. In the classic tradition, the arcade is full of speech and all that kind of thing. Greatly enhances the game, I guess, for the short time you're going to be involved with it. And it grounds it more solidly in the Star Wars universe. Take that away, and you're just kind of playing something that looks kind of like a Star Wars game. But at least, you know, and in the arcades always have the advantage of having a giant Star Wars cabinet as well, which you don't really have with this, do you? So, you know, you don't feel like you're in the world of Star Wars with this. It just kind of feels like an also-ran. It's not a terrible conversion, in all fairness to them. It's just a bit meh. The game is mostly there, and the game speed is good. Much of the arcade is captured in that sense, but, well, it's just a bit of a dull game anyway. And without those micro sections and so late in the day, I mean, 1984, the arcade came out. We're now in 1989. I mean, the film came out in 1983, for goodness sake. Um, it's just a bit, you know, it's, it's just a bit dull and a bit late in the day. And I don't know, without those sort of micro sections of polish and those little bits that you need on something like this, it's just very average. It's not a great game anyway. It's reflected in the Zap score too, I think, at 61%. It's all right. This, it's, it's, but it's for 1989. The film was 1983. The game arcade is 1984. I think the party's over, mate, with that. I think it's party's over and everyone's gone home. What did you think? <laughs> yeah. I mean, as conversions go, it's better than Double Dragon. So as, as for our direct <laughs> arcade conversions of the, uh, of the episode. Yeah, you mean they'd looked at the arcade. <laughs> yeah. But as you've, as you've rightly noted, it lacks all those elements that made the arcade feel like the film, all those interstitials, all the speech, that intro section where the, the Star Destroyer, Super Star Destroyer comes across and we've stuck to this, leave them to me and whatever. You got all that speech. I had a play of the arcade I booted the arcade version upon main yeah, yeah. just for a sort of convert, just for a sort of comparison. And it's all gone. And so what it leaves you with is some fairly empty Zaxxon style isometric action that is pretty brown or black and blue. You know, it's very brown, isn't it? And it's, it uh, is. the graphics aren't bad. The scrolling is pretty smooth. It moves, uh, the moves, it moves too fast almost. The controls are a bit twitchy. Yeah, yeah, swingy, isn't it? Right, swingy. Yeah, they're, and they're very floaty as well. Um, yeah. The arcade version does it a bit, but it's a bit more solid. That at ST, at ST section, it feels like you're skating on ice. There's no sense of moving, you know, a big walking tank type thing oh, yeah. it's not kinetic is it's floaty floaty it's all yeah. over the place yeah which led to meaningless deaths where just you know things are rolling at you and stuff but i don't know we've said this time and time again it's i think yeah it's okay if you but you strip all the razzmatazz out of these arcade experiences you're left with a hollow home version we've said it loads of times space area paper boy you see these you know these um atari conversions ironically enough um yeah, yeah true you, you strip all that you know that great atari sound effects that pokey i know the pokey chip has got four of them in whatever it is but the atari games are always had you know really recognizable sound frequency yes, noise yes, in the arcade yes. that sort of bassy we said this before you take that out yeah it's just a bit just a bit bland isn't it it's, yeah, it's just it's just scrolling to the top left or top right and going round things yeah it would have been interesting as a star wars fan to play it in 1984 but come 1989 nah yeah it's a bit bit too late to the party no yep 
there we go. It's not a terrible conversion. It's an 8-bit conversion or something, but yeah, yeah. it's just, uh, just... A bit dull anyway. bit empty. There we go. Return of the Jedi. bit empty. Or could it be Return of the Bread-Eye? And it's something to do with Mick Hucknall. That's his next album. <laughs> it could be. <laughs> yeah, if you I want I don't want to think to about what his bread-eye is. I'm sure he's shown that to many ladies. I don't... Uh. <laughs> she will be sourdough. <laughs> Let's <laughs> move God's on. Sake. I've grossed myself out. I can't think. You're a terrible move man. On. You're a terrible, terrible man. There's nothing to see here now. Move on. <laughs> move on to our next game. <laughs> that next one, where it's another full price. This is nine ninety nine. Scored less. Got forty percent. This is Hellfire Attack. Hellfire Attack. The dawn of the Afterburner clone is upon us, and this is essentially what we have here. Yes, yes, it certainly is. It's called a Hellfire or Hellfire Attack. It seems to go by both names. I don't know, whatever it is. Anyway, this is from Martech, and uh, looking into it, this seems to be their last game on the C64. No more Martech. Oh, dear. Yeah. Um, They've been bought by uh, EA. Um, oh, wow, okay. I was look sort of having a look around. They get renamed to something called Screen 7 Limited after this. So there you go. So this was developed by Akaido Arcade Systems. Ass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, just saying. Ass. <laughs> it was programmed by David Wainwright, graphics by Mark Jones, and sounds and music by Stephen Legg and Danny Marsh. Um, okay. That's what we've got here. There's an okay loading screen to this, and a decent title screen. Um, but does that thing of having the UI omnipresent on the title screen from the game, so it, the UI is yeah. it's always there, which is a bit... We've seen it in some other games where they just leave the UI on. Yeah, it's all the stuff it? in the top. It is a bit, but maybe it saves memory. I don't know. There's two options. You can have sound on or off, and music on or off. That's it. And I will come to... Uh, I'll come to why in a bit, but turn the sound, turn the music on. Talk about it in a bit, but by default, mine was off. Just turn it on. Just turn the music on. It'll, you'll, you'll just do it. Pressing the fire button. It's, so this is essentially it's an arcade game, arcade style game. It's pressing the fire button gets into the game, and we've got like a you know the screen is split with the UI taking up the bottom third of the game, like it, like, like it did in the title screen, and the game takes place in the top th- top two thirds. The UI at the bottom has your score, the high score, uh, your number of missiles you have left, your current speed, and number of lives, of which you start with eight spare ones. So as noted, it's an afterburner type game uh, in which you actually control a helicopter. The Hellfire helicopter, I don't know what it's called. You're in the heli- you're in a helicopter. I-, I should have actually looked. I didn't know if there's any story to this. I should have looked. I couldn't find one, but whatever it is. It's an it's an arcade blast. You're flying along and you shoot stuff. And what you fly over is very odd, but there's stuff to shoot, and it's just all you got to know is it's an arcade type thing. So every time the game uh, you lose a life, every time it starts, there's a place a little jingle. A little jingle as your helicopter rises up from the floor to oh. mid-screen. I don't know why it plays every time you respawn. It does that thing, but it'll annoy the shit out of you. It did me after a while because you get eight lives. You'll hear it a lot. And from the, the visual, you know, visually it's okay as these things go on the C64, that that your main helicopter sprite, it's uh, it's okay. It's got animated rotor blades. It's a bit chunky, but it works fine. It's got different angles when you bank and dive. So it's a, it's a main sort of sprite seen from behind, like the plane and afterburner. It's, it's okay. The game then starts, it's 3D. Uh, so essentially you're flying into the screen, it's 3D. Now the, the floor is a bit weird. The landscape is a little bit odd. I'll, I'll mention a bit, but essentially, yeah, you're flying over stuff. The first the first couple of levels is weird because it consists of trees and three-bed houses <laughs> coming towards you, which is dead weird. <laughs> it's like, it's just weird on a brown landscape. Melton very Keynes. brown land. 
yeah, you're basically, yeah, you're flying over, you know, my hometown or something like that. It's on a very brown landscape. It's a bit jerky. It's a bit jerky at this point, but it does its job. It, it simulates 3D. These houses coming towards you. You constantly fire bullets from your gun, and if you fly low enough, you can blow up the houses and everything on the floor. It's, it's very odd. It's, I don't know quite sure why, but the whole point is that enemy aircraft start to appear and they sort of fly towards you as they do in sort of waves so the sprites to get bigger now what you do is you actually control um, a crosshair that's in the middle of the screen and that sort of directs where you move your helicopter and as you move your crosshair over the approaching enemies whether that's planes or whatever it is um, it'll sort of lock onto them and at that point you can let fly with one of your missiles to take them down and that's the best way to do it although you are constantly firing your machine gun you want to shoot them with your your missiles You've got 40 of these at your disposal. I'm not sure what the point of that is, as I never ran out of them and finished levels with a few to spare each time. Seems odd. Just make them infinite. <laughs> just, you know, well. the challenge, just put your crosshairs over it. And that's pretty much it. I mean, that's this it. Enemies fly in at you, you line them up in your crosshair and press fire. And another handy tip, you can just hold the fire button down because you won't actually fire a missile until you have them lined up and you, you sort of plink the target locks over them. So just hold the fire button down and move the crosshair around and then it, you don't even have to worry about it. So you can't, you won't waste missiles because it won't shoot one until it's locked on. Every now and then, one of the enemies will launch a yellow missile at you, and that will sort of fly towards the screen and sort of chase you around a bit. And you've got to fly around the screen and avoid it until it buzzes off elsewhere and disappears. If it hits you, you lose one of your lives. You get that jingle, you rise up from the screen again, bottom of the screen, and you carry on. You don't have to restart the level again. You just have to get through. The levels aren't too long. Once you get through to the next one, it's another brown concrete estate then the third one sees you going over the sea the fourth one's at night over a forest i think i got i can't remember what they are um like i said if you fly low enough you can shoot things on the ground so if you dislike three bedroom council houses you'll love this because you blow loads of them up like i said the second level's more the same and, and the gameplay never really changes it just has different locales to fly over with some vaguely different craft attacking you so it, it can feel pretty lightweight for nine pounds 99 without kind of an arcade license to sort of back it up because this feels quite arcade it feels like an afterburner type yeah. game but there's no afterburner you know license on it um so for 9.99 this feels a bit like mm, it's a bit much asking for the not much here there's not much in the way of challenge either it's quite easy to get quite far i think uh, on my first playthrough and i was a bit bored by level five as the sound effects are nothing to write home about now on the first time i played it i didn't turn the music on and it was quite an empty experience there's not much going on so on my second playthrough i did two things there's another control which I haven't spoken about yet, and I'll speak about it in a moment. I turned the music on and I held down the space bar. Because if you hit the space bar, it activates turbo boost. So you've got the speed thing at the bottom, which then makes you go a lot faster. Now, you can just hold the space bar down and it will keep you going at turbo speed. And while it's not transformative, with the music on, and it's kind of this bass sort of rhythm, it's like a doom, 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 there's a bit of pace to it. And it's like this nice sort of, it, weirdly enough, it's got a tune on the top that keeps getting cut out by the, uh, by the, gunshots and stuff and it's actually better when it doesn't that bass rhythm that just keeps that just plays along turns things this this game into you know a completely almost an almost a different kind of game it's not transformative but it's very it's a much more enjoyable game it adds a level of dynamism and a faster pace you know hold down the space bar turn the music on and it feels much more challenging and quicker to blast as and uh, the quicker to blast through than, than at normal because at normal speeds there's some lengthy gaps between the enemy waves appearing flying faster and with the music on changed this into a pretty enjoyable game and i found myself quite quite getting into this it felt like a sort of an arcade it's got like an arcadey sort of bassy sort of rhythm to it the music it's quite it's pretty fast once you hold down that turbo boost the stuff appears in waves quite quickly there's no pretty much there's no gaps between them you're moving left and right firing holding down your fire button blasting away things move at a pace there's no slowdown there's no 
penalty to, to it running at this speed or with the music on. It's really very odd because clearly this game could run at that speed and handle it. So I have no idea why they felt it needed to be as sedate it is in normal mode without, the, without holding down the fire space bar. It feels dull. It's dull as hell. Turn the, turn the music on, hold down the space bar, and you'll get a complete, you know, it's not brilliant. It's still a bit lightweight for $9.99, but as an arcade experience, it's a hell of a lot better. And not a terrible, you know, it's a fairly decent afterburner knockoff, I thought, all told. So I didn't actually mind this, but it was weird that I had to do those things to make it a better game. I don't know why it's bewildering, why those things are not just standard in it. As it is, do those things. You've got an okay into the screen blaster, I thought, that was, you know, you could rock it through the levels, there's stuff going mm. on, music's fine good little blaster just weird that it didn't play like that from the start what did you think how did you find this it's weird it's an oddball thing this isn't it mm. i mean it's the you're flying a bell ah1 cobra um assault yeah, i should have it it's terrible of me i should have done more research i don't know what's going on um just so you know what you're flying really um and i thought the initial landing looked quite good on it pardon the pun I thought they had an okay-looking UI, good thematic music, if a little bit odd, but it sounded pretty thematic and action-y, you know, it had that yeah. kind of nice sort of action-y type sound. I thought the game view was interesting. I'd remembered this more on the Amiga than I did the C64 when I came to play it. like, oh, it's that one, because I remember the Amiga one. But um, it's quite interesting, that kind of slanty parallax type idea, pretty neat, actually, the way that it is. It's, it's a bit odd that the horizon tilts, but the trees don't. But, you know, okay, there's limitations, but it's arcade speed is there. And like you say, why they're not running it at breakneck, I don't know. It you know, it just makes no sense not to, really. Mm. In fact, it would make more sense to have the you know, space bar slow things down like a slow motion. So you, so you could sort of, sort of do quick targeting and then fire five missiles at once and things like that. that I don't know. It's just weird that it's done that way. Threw me a bit that the controls and the joystick were reversed, but you get used to it soon enough. Targeting system, a little bit frustrating, really, but it sort of works, but it's better at higher speed. And you feel a lot less vulnerable at higher speed. And when you're playing at normal speed for the game, you, you die really quickly and you get hit loads. If you're running through it faster as an assault helicopter might, it's less like that, which is kind of odd. So it's a game that's actually been hampered by itself. Yeah. Anyway... I found it ridiculously difficult in slow mode and passable in high speedy mode. I quite like the idea of it, you know, the way it played, the afterburner with a helicopter. It's not a bad old thing, this. Quite well put together, actually. It's deceptive. Yeah. It's, it is dead simple what you're doing, just, you know, shooting off helicopters and baddies and whatnot and then go to the next bit, shoot enough to get to the next bit. And, you know, yeah, there is that daft little annoying thing when you die, you get that silly sequence and all that, but I don't know. It's, it's quite hard in the wrong way. If you don't play it the right way, it's weird that it's kind of in the wrong it's the wrong way around it's got that weird horizony thing but it's a 3d-ish shoot em up and it's a pretty nippy one at that and the code here isn't bad at all actually for it because it's all moving at a much better pace than some of the other games like like um space um harry and stuff like that this is way better at doing what it's doing that's kind of scaling effect so i thought it's it was in slow mode a bit dreary and over difficult in fast mode more like an arcade game which is how you'd want to play it. So, you know, stick the music on, hold the space bar down, and you'll enjoy it for what it is. Um, mm. Don't do those things, and you're going to get blown out of the sky very quickly, and you'll be wondering why, <laughs> and it's because you're too slow. Yeah. Um, but it was all right. It got a very average review, didn't it? 48% in Zap. I don't know. It's not a lot to it for 10 quid. And yeah. You, you know, if, if you've got to manage the nuances to make it playable, then they did something wrong. So, yeah, for, I get it. 50, 48, 50%, okay. But it's an interesting little thing, and it came out on loads of other formats, isn't it? Atari ST, Amiga, Spectrum. Yeah, yeah, so, it did, yeah. Yeah, I had fun playing it at breakneck speed, not so much in slow speed, so yeah. there you go. Yeah, the um, the the land the landscape as well is a bit weird, because when you actually do turn left and right, the horizon moves, but the, the houses don't, which is a bit... Yeah, they stay, yeah, it's a bit nerving. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, ah, uh, it's like the land the land twist, but but I get it, it's a C64, and it's, it's yeah, right exactly. to, twist, to twist them 
would have been a bit more. But... Split the screens that kind of three way thing, which is that that previous game that was transported off the Amiga did that. That crappy one that we hated with the the cyber ostriches and it, the robot ostriches. Oh, Terrapods. Yeah, that that kind of three way sort of scrolly side split thing. But yeah, anyway. maybe. But yeah, Hellfire Attack. Well, Hellfire. It's okay. Just hold, like we said, hold down the fire button, put on the music, turns That's it into it. a decent arcade blast. There you go. Hold down space bar. Yeah. There you go. That's that. We've got one more left. Let's move on to it. And Graham, it's over to you to tell us what it was like in times of law. Wow, this is a biggie, isn't it? Big, it's a big old chunky thing, this. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So it's 995, this, uh, 80% in Zap. This was published by Origin Systems. That's the makers of the Ultima series, amongst some others. This was coded by Paul C. Isaac and Chris Roberts um, and Martin Galway, and mysteriously with assistance from Chris Yates as well. How strange. And Ken Arnold. Mm-hmm. And the graphics are by Dennis Lubay, and he was, was responsible for some of the Ultima games. The, all of these guys are basically responsible, with the exception of Martin Galway and Chris Yates, because obviously that's Chris Yates from Sensible, so that's Whizball, yeah. Chris Yates. Mm-hmm. They're obviously responsible for a significant proportion of the Ultima games. Um, so interesting sort of, you know, sideline for this. this, you know, this, this they were a big America company, apparently owned by two um, quirky characters. And um, there's, there's a bit of a write-up um, to do with them in the sensible book, actually, about a completely different project. So I'll talk about that you know, later. So let's get into uh, the Times of Law then. So Times of Law is, a, is a, an RPG. Uh, role-playing game. Now, I must confess, I've got to confess something of a guilty secret. I do have a soft spot for these kind of games. Um, oddly, I've never really explored it a lot until I played Shining Force on the Mega Drive. All right, okay. Um, and, and believe it or not, I, I developed a bit of an affinity for them. Um, now, I don't play them very often, and I've, I haven't played a lot of them for a long time, but during some times when it's been had quite a bit of time, every now and again, I'll, I'll, I'll dive into one of these and, and play at it for a bit peculiar really but it's just one of those things and um, so the bit of a guilty pleasure really the setting for this game is familiar rpg trope you know it's tropes all the way and it sits very comfortably in the ultima style game camp really mm-hmm. so the once peaceful lands of albareth uh, are starting to fall apart a darkness is creeping into the lands evil creatures roam the forests adrian's never good that and no. outside the castle walls as well there is unrest and everyone is checking their change and whispering to each other uh, something's going on the High King Valwin has all but disappeared, at least for the last 20 years, and seemingly so has his son and heir. The once stable, if unpopular, peace between the Elden Men of Albareth and the unruly barbarians, brokered by the High King by granting the barbarians the realm of Ganistor in exchange for their allegiance to the crown, has once again started to come undone. The regent, Dariel, left in charge in the king's absence, has been arrested by the barbarians, and trouble is brewing and time is running out. Dark things are afoot. Also, as if all that wasn't bad enough, the most powerful of the three mighty artifacts of magic, the Golden Medallion of Power, created by wizards to help the king govern the realm, has vanished. The others, the Tablet of Truth and the Foretelling Stones, are hidden away across the lands to the north and south, and in the care of those chosen to wield such mighty objects. The power of the Golden Medallion cannot be underestimated, giving the bearer control over armies and leggies. So much power can be drawn from that this that it draws it directly from the heart of the bearer, and so, in truth, only an Elden with the blood of a king can wield it. In other words, the king. I sense great foreshadowing with that particular statement. Anyway, indeed, the somewhat uneasy truce between Hydric, the barbarian leader, and the High King Valwyn was forged with the golden power of the talisman itself, with Valwyn not only giving Hydric the tablet of truth, which gives the holder the power to answer questions, which is a pretty lame power, I think, unless you play in <laughs> Trivial Pursuit a lot. 
Um, but it also grants him the title and granted him the title of Warden of Ganistor. All these wounds ran pretty deep for many of the Elden Lords in the south. Living in and around Ganistor, they did not like the barbarians or agree with the pact. And of course, with the king on the sick, his son Awol, and the regent struggling to manage, well, the journey of chaos knows only one path. And so begins your quest in this backdrop of troubles. You play as an adventurer, eager to find the king and bring peace and order to the lands of Albareth in whatever way you might find that's best achieved. Ostensibly, the task really is to find a way to return the High King from exile, possibly, and I'm not saying this, you know, maybe it's a way, by finding the three magical artifacts along the way. You might also enjoy killing a few monsters, grabbing some treasure, quaffing a few ales, that kind of RPG type stuff. Mm-hmm. You start your adventure with a nice graphic and a choice. Start new or reload a previous save. Indeed, saving in this game is critical and it's all pretty easy to do as well. Then into the intro, a series of text and images telling the tale of Arbreath and the Barbarians, which, by the way, is a great name for a band. Um, <laughs> quite nicely rendered with some thematic music in the background. Indeed, Galway actually on good form here, I thought, for this kind of thing. Very really understated good. for him. Really good. Um, yeah. Really worked well. Um, and though simple, this intro really sets the tone and scene for the game. And I thought the graphics were actually pretty damn good. Even the read, even the readable scroll text looked good. Yeah, all looks all great. Good. All great great stuff. Yeah. You then choose your character type from a knight of unfailing courage, a Valkyrie both strong and beautiful, and a barbarian of matchless might. Um, so I no doubt you chose the Valkyrie. Yeah. Um, <laughs> bloody knew it. I chose the knight. This will be your character throughout your adventure and what you choose does have a bearing on how the game plays out as they all have different strengths and fighting abilities, which is pretty cool all said and done. Um, you move the pointer with the joystick already and to sort of choose these and you're sort of moving an arrow, as it were. Not moving it all around the screen. You move it, you know, selection-wise, yeah, sort of, but- you know, selection pointer, yeah. Um, and that already, so that sets the tone for how the game's going to control later, which is nice. Um, and it's there's a little bit of character profile. tells you a little bit about the character. I'm not going to read them out, but, it, you know, Play the game because it's pretty good and you'll you'll see those. You get a really nice graphic image of the person you're going to play, which is really cool. The night one looks great as well. Really classic. And these are all online, so you can go find them. And then the adventure begins where all of these adventures of this type should begin in the pub, a.k.a. the Frothing Sloth Tavern. Yep. Great stuff. The game is played from a classic RPG top-down view. Top half of the screen sees you as a mini character, which you'll move compass point style around via the joystick. The fire button activates your weapon. Um, the backgrounds are generally what that kind of tile-based background style akin to these kind of games, creating the walls, doors, stairs, and furniture in situ, but also then the environment outside, so trees, rivers, pathways, other places, things like that. Underneath your play area is the UI, which contains a text area where all of the game info, dialogue, etc., is displayed. Under that are your eight control icons, and to the right of that is a lit candle that represents your life energy. So as the candle melts down, you're losing, you know, you need to get something to eat or whatever. Mm-hmm. So it gradually melts down over time. And you need to ensure you keep your character fed and rested appropriately to ensure you are fighting fit throughout the game. Very common in these kind of games. The icons are pretty self-explanatory by design. So a mouth for talk, eye for examine, bag for inventory, hand with a down arrow for drop, hand with an up arrow for pick up, hand gripping a shaft uh, for you <laughs> um, for using using things. Uh-huh. Commodore symbol for game options, hand outstretched to give. To switch between controlling your player in the game window and accessing these icons, you press the space bar. You will then get an arrow that you move left or right, so there's no wandering icons. You're not, you know, got something flailing around the screen, and the fire button activates the option. Should anything occur, you'll see text and contextual windows pop out in a mini way, um, and like a little, you know, keep going, keep move the page to the next sort of little mini page of text. And you'll also hit audio cues for things like new information, such so as like a ping sound, which is quite nice. Yep, um, it's pretty easy to. It's a pretty easy game to read graphically. In all fairness, as the screens don't vary that much, so you have the consistency of operating between two modes of operation. On a relatively painless UI. Nice. Dead simple, but classic classic Ultima. It plays pretty much exactly like that. 
Yep. Um, certainly the later Ultimate games anyway. And then, of course, you know, we'll, we'll talk about some of the, you know, the forebearers of the Zeldas of this world a little bit later. So the game then, you walk around, talk to characters, gain information, go from place to place on your quest. You know, classic RPG stuff, really. The more you converse with NPCs who are dotted throughout the game, the more they will gradually reveal to you in the classic tradition of this kind of thing. When they drop something you don't know, um, there'll be a ping sound, and then you can contextually dig a bit deeper into that. And so you can dive into the conversations a bit more. You'll fight a variety of monsters as well along your travels, such as orcs, skeletons, ghosts, rogues, and slime, um, as well as meet all sorts of peasants, innkeepers, guards, clerics, and such. To engage in chat, you will need to master the art of chit-chat, which means you need to be affable to start conversations off and can't run around threatening everyone with a sword. It doesn't tend to go down so well if you do that. They're not very chatty. So once you've started the conversations off, um, you can then ask more deeper diving questions. They'll give you some information like, oh, I hear there's some fog in the north. Ask question, what about the fog in the north? That kind of way it works. You know, very Mm. classic tradition of RPG stuff. And that's all done and guided via a very simple UI. It's nice and easy. It's not difficult to do. Combat is a hand-to-hand affair generally, assuming that you this is the weapon you have. With pressing the fire button, engaging your weapon when it's time to do so. When you kill an enemy, which are normally just wandering around outside of the sort of towns and things, you see a little gravestone when they're finally dead. And then they might drop an item, which is anything from treasure and weapons to other items and potions. Potions are all color coded and will do different things. And once you, and there's also scrolls as well. And once you've picked up one and it's in your inventory, you can't pick up another one until you've consumed or used the one you have. So you can't just stock up on blue potions because the blue mm. ones give you boosting of health. Also, as stated, you need to eat and drink to keep yourself going, which you can either go into an inn and rest, or you can just stand around if you like, but it takes ages. Or you can eat food and you can buy that from inns as well. And you might find it along the way and you can consume that to build back your strength. Well, you will need to do that though, because you'll start to get very, you'll, well, your candle starts to burn out. And as Roy Batty found out to his doom, <laughs> you know, don't burn the candle like that. All right. No. If you choose to sleep at the inn, um, which you can do, that saves your game. And it goes through a little sequence and then you've, your game is actually saved at that point. So if you reload your game, which you can do at any time by pressing the Commodore key and do load, it will load back from, in it's sort of a, a continue save. So it continues from that game window until you die. That's the game that it's going to keep saving, which is quite nice. So you can just go and pick, pick up where you left off if you want to do that. Yep. Quite cool that. The graphics throughout are typical of this kind of thing. Now I'm saying that, but this is quite early into that kind of thing. But there's been games that have sort of set the benchmark for how these things go, Ultima and Zelda, really. There's a fairly limited color palette, but just enough to give you a sense of your place. It's not going to win any animation awards and the backgrounds and a character sort of based, I think, by the look of it. Given that this is available on pretty much every computer around at the time, and there's every version of this, I imagine there's a kind of fixed set of game assets that have just been ported, as well as some of the game functions. The background will scroll around you, albeit a bit slowly, keeping you central in the action, and you will move around the locations via doors, stairs, and when outside, around trees, walls, and that kind of thing. Your walking pace is somewhat ploddy, and even though this does pick up pace as you a little, as you continuously push the joystick in a direction, it will speed you up a little. Additional characters appearing anywhere will soon put the kibosh on that more rapid movement, as well as obstacles like trees and, and balls. Indeed, walking from place to place is unnecessarily time-consuming in this game. I think that's possibly, it's real, It's kind of a big issue really for it. It's the only issue I've found. That it's just, it, there's a lot of walking in this and it's going to take you a while. Um, there's apparently, now I've read somewhere it's 13,000 locations. That could be 1,300. I could have just written an extra zero there. But anyway, there's a lot of locations to explore. It's an enormous map you get with the game. Um, and there's a lot of games and things to discover, all of which are great, but it's just that walking to them is going to take you a while. But if you accept that that's going to happen and it's, you're part of the game experience, fine. Um, I think some parts of it are a bit maze-like and that gets a bit frustrating. So when you go up into the woods and it's walking around the trees, unless you've got a map, it's just a bit of a, and you need to draw a map some, to some of these mini locations. It just gets you sort of walk, walking a bit, hit a tree, go backwards, hit more trees. And you're going to get constantly attacked in there by 
ogres and orcs and things like that. They're, they're easy to kill, but they all take their health away in little bits, in little increments. So I don't know. Um, there is a large color map that comes with this, and there's a you know we'll put the link in the show notes to a place where you can view that. It is massive, um, so the whole thing can feel a little maybe like a bit of a daunting prospect. But you know, you, you're buying into an RPG, so you know what you're getting. I don't think that really matters. I um, in something like this anyway. Really, the pedestrian nature of the exploration might greatly affect your ability to get where you need to go in any kind of time scale that you might be happy with. But other than that. You know, there's a lot of wandering around in the game. Okay, it's an RPG. That's going to happen. Obviously, this is from Origin, who are the makers of the Ultima series. And so there is a direct Ultima lineage in there. You can clearly see also the influence of this and Nintendo's 1986 Legend of Zelda, without a doubt. You know, it's, you know, but that's, that's kind of how these games are. None of those things are bad things, though, I don't think. It's clearly in the RPG Heritage game section, so it's part of that family. There are some interesting names attached to this. Martin Galway, at this stage, had left Ocean, as I said before. And this is just on the cusp of him joining the Sensible Software guys as a partner in you know, around the Microsoft Soccer time, as we've already said. It's not clear what additional code was provided by Chris Yates and or Martin at this point. Oddly, Martin joined Sensible as more of a game coder than a musician. And just after Times of Law being completed, Sensible had been optioned by Origin to develop a game that never got made in the end called Touchstone. Anyway, there's some clearly some kind of working partnership in there. John Hare in the Sensible book describes a good relationship with Origin, even if they didn't go with the Touchstone game in the end. So maybe that's all connected in some way. There is a great Games That Weren't website article about the whole thing, which I'll link in the show notes, and it's definitely worth a look and a read. Though Galway didn't have a bad time at Origin by the sound of it, according to a couple of interviews I read, he describes 1988 and 1989 as horrible years for him. So I'm guessing something was, you know, crazy was going on, whatever that may be. It's not reflected in the music for this because it's very good. So at its heart, Times of Lore is a classic RPG game, very in keeping with the methods, traditions, and notions of this kind of game. There is a lot of slow wandering, and that does become maybe a bit tiresome, but... If you're willing to put in the hours, go with the adventure and chuck up the narrative as you go, exploring the map. There's a solid quest, an easy-to-read game window, and UI, and a large RPG offering you a world to explore. It sits next to the Ultima series. Maybe this is an in for those that never got into that, those because by this time they were up to Ultima 5. So for those that had come to this via a different route, this might be your thing and this might be your first encounter. So it's maybe a sort of a small format in. And every format, it's on every format there is from Spectrum to DOS, with very little variance in how it plays, though I don't generally like games that involve a lot of wandering around uh, generally. This is actually pretty rudimentary entry into the RPG canon. I found myself really liking it. The music and sounds are good throughout. The graphics are good with some nice uh, title screen and supplementary graphics. And overall, it's just one great big fancy old adventure. The way I figure it, if you're going to do an RPG, this is probably as good a starting place as any for the C64 if you've not come across the Ultima games. And I really enjoyed my time playing it. And I will be going back to my save because I was getting quite into it and getting quite far into it. <laughs> but what about you? Yeah, yeah. I was really, really impressed with this. Like, very impressed with this. I never played it. And yeah, I mean, my first day, you could say it's a tad slow, a little empty, but it's a vast world to explore. And it it's is. apart from those intro bits... It's a single load. Yeah. It's a single load. It's 64K. I mean, this is astonishing. How this is fitted yeah. into 64K with everything, all the quest, all the text, all the dialogue. Eh? How's this? What? I don't know. Complete with full scrolling. Day and, I mean, you know, it scrolls all around. So it's not like uh, the, you know, Legend of Zelda, which was flick screen. Um, this is full scrolling. It's got a day and night cycle. Um, it's got stuff to buy, people to talk to, rumors, quests, so on, so on, and so on. I found one point just after making my way through the maze of trees, I found a mage in a tower and it says, You've been transported somewhere. And then he won't talk to me yet. I was like, Oh, I want to talk to you. But um, yeah, this is one of those few games that I really wish I'd played at the time. Um, the opening in the inn reminded me of when I started playing Morrowind. 
um, back in the day. I think we start off somewhere, and the first thing I did was go to an inn. I got asked to kill some rats, and it just it felt felt typical RPG. But I was like, this is 8-bit, 1989, hmm. C64 doing this. And all things considered, it's that kind of game. The graphics are pretty decent. If you didn't play as a Valkyrie, it's worth watching the uh, a video of a place where she's got pendulous boobs. They swing from side <laughs> to side ridiculously when you're walking downwards. It's ridiculous. I was like, oh, dear. But uh, whatever. But I, I, I love the way. I really like the way it controls. I like walking backwards, and then just after a few steps, you swing about. I thought that was good. Um, it's a really nice thing, and the fact you know, um, you, the longer the longer you walk, the faster you get. Um, I did read somewhere that there's a pair of fast boots in one of the towns. Yeah, somewhere um, you can find them. That's so right. I, was, I went looking for them. The icon system is great, easy to use, bring up space, and ta 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 find what you want. Dead simple. No need. To, um, you're encouraged to use the stuff you find, as you said. Is you can only have one in your inventory, so no need for hoarding and, and, and inventory paralysis here. Because, you know, a lot of games you're like, oh, I'll save them all because I might need them for a big fight or something like that. No, you're not going to get any more, so use it. That's it, you know. So I really like that idea. Talking to people is quick and simple. There's plenty to do if you don't mind the wandering around. And I didn't. I liked that I snuggled up into bed when I stayed at an inn. I really like that little sort of thing. Just get into a bed and you're snuggled up nice and neat and then it saves. Yeah. And you wake up and you're like, ah, oh. that's really cute. And it's like just a li- really good little touch. You could have just gone to black. But these little touches all the way through it. Yep. In my first playthrough, I started on the old man in the inn. I hit him by mistake. When I went out, all the townspeople attacked me and the guards came over and killed me. When I started the second time, <laughs> they all left me alone. Felt like oblivion in the fact of you, you know, you attack anyone in the towns and Morrowind, they, all the guards will come after you and everyone will come up. Absolutely. Same, same here. Um, which I thought that's really good. Um, I wasn't expecting that, that kind of sort of system to be in play in something like this. I liked the eating provision was automatic. It just went, I'm hungry. I'm eating. Yeah. Yeah. You didn't have to go into your menu and do it. as long as you had some, it just did it. Like that's yep. a really nice, simplified player afford. Yes. I've got a provision. I'm going to eat it. Great. And I'm hungry. What a great game. What a really, really, really great game. I so wish I'd played this at the time. And like what we said about pirates, I don't think they knew what they had here. I don't no, think I this, agree. Um, this is another underrated gem on the system. This is a Sizzler, possibly, probably a gold medal every day of the week. It's so yeah. unlike. I mean, there may be other things that we've not looked at in the strategy sections of the system on the thingy, but in 64K, to get all this in there, to have the production values it has, those screenshots at the beginning, that intro to the story, the way all this works and the way it all just combines together, I was, I thought this was ace. Ace. I really, really, really enjoyed yeah. this. What a game. What a surprise. Yeah, really good. Really good. And, you know, all to come from that mismatched barbarian in the advert with the terrible, you know, terrible musculature. Yeah. Um, but well, crap of it may be, but great game that. Really good. And, and again, I'm going to go back to as well. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I did, I did as well. I mean, this is one, of, like I said, if I'd have got this back then, I'd have, I'd have, I think I'd blown my mind. Because, you know, yeah. I love things like Master of Magic and stuff like that. You see, right up your street, this. But this would have been like, I'd have been hooked on this for ages. I'd have played, yeah. supposedly two or three hundred hours worth of play in it. So I've read yeah, yeah. somewhere. I can, I can see that. It's a very involved game. And, and as you start to get more involved, as I'm starting to do, it, it starts to unravel even more. So, you know, you find out a lot about the king and, and his yeah. relationship with his son. And it's just some really good depth to the, all of it. It's really good. And all in 64K. I know, and that is incredible. I mean, that yeah. really is incredible. I mean, we, if you think we've come from, I mean, what was incredible back then when we started this podcast was we didn't particularly like it for its plodiness for something like um, Lords of Midnight, which we thought was yeah. incredible for 64K. But then you get this, which is, yeah. shows what shows what can be done in bloody 64K. And we, you know, you look at something, some of the games we look at, uh, astonishingly good, really good, yep. really impressive. Really good stuff. 
Yeah, and way better than 80%. Come on, I mean, does that being really silly there? I, I don't think they knew what they had. No, well, they, they, they go on and on about the slowness of it. I know it's so slow, it's so slow. It's like, hang on, just, you know, the games like this are about taking time with things, you know? Yes, yeah, absolutely. And it's easy enough to walk past most of the monsters. You don't even yeah, have to exactly. sort of encounter, you just... No, should you really? You know, you don't have to fight everything. No, the odd one every now and again, you might be in your way, but most of them I just ran straight past. It was just like, right, I'm going somewhere else. And it was another one of those games I was like, I'm exploring that way, and off I went. Yeah, right when you start, and, like, oh, and it changes. Yeah, there's there's orcs in the north, in in the forest. Went now, nah, I'm off. Yeah. I'm off south. Yeah, <laughs> and, and that's the great thing about it. Each time you play, it, you could take a different route, different things, different things would happen. Like, and certain conversations in the game trigger certain actions as well, which is very very clever. Yeah. So, and if you don't have those conversations, those things don't happen. I mean, no, and the way it clever, plays right? that little ping, like to know to notify to notify you when this the new new conversation avenue has opened up, ping. You're like, yeah, oh, okay. Such a clever idea that is. Yeah, you don't have to keep going back in wondering. It's like if you don't hear it and nothing's happened. Yep. Yeah, really good. Really, really like this. Thought it was excellent. Um, what a game. Go play it. Go yeah. play it. Do yourself a favor. The manual's online. It's not an in-depth manual. It's quite easy to get into. And there's an and there's a map you can find for the whole of the place. Of so go, you know, go and go and play it. Yeah. Can't recommend it enough. Times of law. Yep. Really yep. enjoyed that. Finally, we get one we can really get behind, and that's going to be a contender at the end of the year, I'm telling you. I reckon so, yeah. It's, I think it's this year's train. Yes, so I think, yes, I would agree with you. So, right so far, I mean, I can't... I'll we know just... we've got some heavy hitters, but this is one of those surprise games that's come out of the blue, hasn't it? So, yeah. very good. Yeah, exactly. Cool. There you go. Good stuff. Times of law. We really, really like that. That's it. That's the uh, six games for this week. What did we look at? Let me just bring up the list because I can't remember off the top of my head. We looked at Micro Pro Soccer, which we thoroughly enjoyed, or Ken, what was it? Ken, Ken Van Aeron, whatever his name was, Keith Van Aeron, Kevin Van Aeron, whatever his name was. Anyway, it's him. Double Dragon, which we didn't enjoy because it was dreadful. Uh, International Rugby Simulator, which, well, there was rugby occurring. And I think that's the best we can say about it. Return of the Jedi, which was a bit of a hollow version of the uh, old arcade game. Hellfire Attack, which would have been better if it had just flew faster like it can do and had the music on from the start. And finally, Times of Law, which was undeniably brilliant. So uh, a good, very good way to end. Finally, something has made us made us smile and feel happy about ourselves. That's it. That's it for this week. Um, if you wish to support the podcast, you can do that. We've already mentioned t-shirts and merch. If you want to do that, you can do uh, uh, buy us a coffee, coffee.zaptothepast.com uh, uh, or whatever it is. Um, if you wish to sort of, uh, you know, donate something there, or you can join our Patreon um, at patreon.com forward slash zap to the past. And that's a pound, you know, if you just want the basic and just chip us a pound each month, or if you wish to go for the full fat thing and get on the discord and the challenges and the high scores and things like that. I think you're doing some, um, aren't we doing the merch cheaper? Um, For Patreons, yes. Yes. We are, yes. If you're a Patreon, you get special deals on all of our merch. So, well, all the T-shirts anyway. Yeah, so, uh, you know, there's that as well if you fancy some of that. So, you know, that'd be cool. If you fancy any of that, then you can do that at £4.50 or your local equivalent. I think that's about it. What good game to end on? I feel really on a good high. That's nice. Nice to have that. Um, You got anything you want to add, Graham? No, no. Just to say, definitely go and play Times of Law because it's really good. Definitely do not play double dragon because it's a pile of crap so, <laughs> yeah. if there's ever a piece of advice i was going to give you 
it's definitely do those two, those things. Please don't play Double Dragon because it will offend you in ways I can't explain. Yeah, it's a Double Dragon's nostril. It's awful. <laughs> so is. Really. <laughs> it's awful, horrible. Uh, so right, bad. there we go then. So we're going to leave what we've got next week. Well, next week we round off February. So we have coming up in next week, we have Thunderblade. I don't know about that one. It's that arcade game, isn't it? It's that arcade conversion. Yeah, I don't know about that. Gorilla War. Don't look good. Mm, uh, Live and Let Die. Neuromancer. Uh, okay. It's going to be another biggie, maybe. Let's see what that turns out like. Espionage. And finally, Rackham. Um, that's okay. it. That, that rounds out our look at February uh, 1989. I think that's about it. So without further ado, I think I'll say goodbye. So as ever, I have been Adrian Mills. And I have been Graham Raddings. And you have been listening to Zapped to the Past. And we are going wandering back around Albareth. And we may see you in times of law. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Zap to the Past podcast. We hope you enjoyed our deep dive into the world of Commodore 64 games, as well as the music, films and TV from around the 1980s, driven, of course, by the issue of Zap 64 magazine published at that time. We will return with a whole new batch of games and stuff to talk about next week. Until then, if you want to listen to or download previous episodes of Zap to the Past, and why wouldn't you, they can all be found on our website at zaptothepast.com, as well as being available on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, Audible, Player FM, and, well, pretty much anywhere where we can upload them. By the way, we do always love to hear from our amazing listeners, so if you'd like to contact us about anything in the podcast or beyond, you can do so by emailing us at zaptothepast at gmail.com. We're also active on Twitter under at Zaptuther, as well as Facebook, Instagram, and most social media platforms. Just search for Zap to the Past and you'll find us. Oh, and if you like the podcast and what we're doing, please do like, share, review, rate us. It really helps. Something, apparently. The Zap to the Past podcast is written and produced by Adrian Mills and Graham Ruddings and recorded at Flaky Bits 2.0 Studio. All opinions expressed are those of the writers, and while we indeed love Zap 64 magazine, the Zap to the Past podcast is not affiliated with it in any way. Stay safe, see you next time, and remember, we play these games so you don't have to.